Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee with our head coach, Chad Zimmerman. Hi, everybody. Our CEO, Nate Pearson. Chad's doing Cape Epic. <laughs> Out of the gate. So. Yep. That's how long you made it. Coming yep. in hot. <laughs> well, I, have, we, I had to commit you on recording because you said you were going to do it. 2021, Chad and Pete Morris. Cape are Epic. going to be, and you and Sofia Gomez Villafonier are yep. going to be doing it as well. <clears throat> Pretty exciting news. That's pretty exciting. <clears throat> yep, very I, exciting. I denied this wholeheartedly. I have zero interest in doing that bike yep. race. John's not involved. But nope. Nate just got me at the wrong, uh, the wrong minute, the right minute, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it was a minute. <laughs> and he got in. Okay, uh, sorry. Yeah, hi. <laughs> <laughs> Good to see you, Nate. So this is the podcast where we answer the questions that you've submitted at trainroad.com slash podcast. And we also answer the questions that you submit live when you join us every week on Thursday. It's usually Thursdays at 8 a.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll otherwise inform you on our forum, which is forum.trainroad.com if that time changes. But right now we are Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific. You can join us on Facebook and YouTube, and you can head over to forum.trainroad.com and you can search for episode 203, which is this episode, to find any notes or links or anything else that we mentioned during this podcast that you might be interested in, or or join in on the conversation with other podcast listeners there, which is another cool thing you can do. Before we get any further, we should wish some good luck to everybody that's doing cross-country marathon national championships here in the U.S. this coming weekend. I know that we have Rose Grant, uh, Stan's pivot team rider and trainer road user. She's uh, prepping for it. She's hopefully gets a really good result. She was just on the podcast. Yeah, she just was. A great episode with her. Sonia Looney is also going there to race and she's, she's feeling ready to go also on the podcast and also train a road user. Pretty awesome. She's actually been following the cross country marathon specialty plan and she's been prepping for this, which is pretty exciting stuff. Cool. And, uh, you have plenty of other people I'm sure that, uh, that are racing it, that are train road users. So if you're listening to this and you're driving there or something else, good luck. Uh, Sonia shared a cool quote with me that I liked, uh, and I'm probably going to screw it up. So forgive me, Sonia, but, uh, yeah, preparation takes anxiety and turn, turns it into excitement. And just remember that, uh, I'm sure that if you've been listening to this, you've been training, you've been preparing, trust in that preparation and, uh, it's just time to execute now. So exciting stuff. Uh, and then before we get into the questions, some takeaways. Uh, so Nate, you did, uh, four races in a day five no five five, five in two days five in two days uh do you want to jump into your racing really quick and then we can cover yeah. some things that i learned we in got, the stage race we got a lot of videos so i won't go in the races but mm -hmm. basically the crits circuit race these are basics right yeah, but yeah. everyone needs to know you need to snap you want to make separation uh watching some of these videos you know, you don't snap you drag a bunch of people along mm -hmm. i need to work on that snap and i don't so you're talking about the initial <clears throat> burst in speed when jump. you start something yep. and jump yeah yeah because yeah, if you don't get separation Ah, mm -hmm. It's really hard. Or you have to surprise people. But if people are riding your wheel, you can't surprise people, uh, which I had. And that's totally a fair tactic. Or you um, catch them when they're tired. To catch them when they're tired, yeah. Good point. But if they're riding your wheel the whole time, how do you make them tired? Yeah, well, that's a tough one. Put exactly. Got to gutter them in a crosswind or something. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah. So um, racing multiple times in a day. I talked to Pete about this. It's really hard. And maybe now I might not do it as much. But one race always, you always think about the next race, I feel like. Like when you're racing one race, you're like, yeah. oh, I got this next race coming up. I'm going to race this a little differently than I would normally because I want to uh -huh. save some energy for this uh -huh. next race. That's a tough mentality. I, <clears throat> sorry. That's a tough mentality. And I think you actually pointed that out when you talked about how um, I think it was Keegan in particular at the stage race at, uh, in, in, in Utah, in Utah yeah. where yeah. They, they, they hold nothing back every day. They yes. completely go for it, completely committed. And that's kind of the same I, idea. Yeah, I feel like the same. Like I understand what you mean though, right? Because you have these other races coming up. 
and you're thinking, man, I could get more points in these other races and that would be really good for upgrades, that yeah. sort of a thing. Mm. So you're kind of thinking like, should I hold back? But really to your point, I think that what you're getting at is you should just race every race. Like it's the only race that day. Yeah. But it's, it's hard mentally D depending. when you, when you're signed depending. up for a second yeah, I mean, one, if you're there just to log, you know, cat five starts. Sure. Yeah. Different. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And also, uh, another good example of this is if it's a very different sort of race, like for example, you have a good opportunity to win the next race. You think like relatively speaking more than the current one. Yeah, in that case, I'd almost argue why you'd even precede it with a race. It's just going to soften you up a bit. Sure. Well, maybe you have a stage race where it's like a, you have a TT and a crit in the same day, something like that, you know, sure. but otherwise in this case, you were kind of racing like the same race, so yeah. to speak, and you were just doing it many times. And the final race we had on the day, well, I did the, <clears throat> I was so upset with my performances that I did the cat 35 plus one, two, three race. Mm -hmm. I raced it aggressively gotten a lot of breaks, was in a breakaway that was probably going to make it, <laughs> but I was so tired. I was, <laughs> and I was cramping up my hands cramped on the handlebars. Oh, to give you an example of how tired I was, uh, I did like 296 for like 10 or 15 minutes, normalized power in the break, which for you is very low. Yeah. I do like 360 <laughs> yeah. for longer. Right. Yeah. Right. So it was very, very frustrating. We got caught with about 90 seconds to go. Yeah. Um, oh, and that would have been painful. so cool. Right. With that's, three of us, the other guys really strong. Um, Anyways, uh, one last thing. Uh, this is a good team tactic that I see. I've seen this in Cat 3 races a lot. Mm -hmm. In Northern California racers, uh, Mike's Bikes, if people who don't know, it's like a premier Northern California team. Mm -hmm. they, I think some of the riders win national champs. They're, oh, yeah. they're really good they're riders. They're very good. Yeah, they got a lot of um, talent. They have racers in all different categories. They do this tactic in Cat 3, and I don't see other teams counter it. So I'm In talk Cat 3. In Cat 3, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to talk about it, and then I want to see... Because uh, I think other teams could do this in other areas and, totally. and do a great job. So what they do is they they line up like two or three riders at the front. They're going tempo. And then what they do is they have that first rider just do kind of like an easy attack off the front. Maybe mm -hmm. they let one or two people go with that rider and they know they're good. But then um, they just let the gap open, right? So they're... They're, they're pedaling kind of, you know, they're at the front, right? And they're just letting it open. And they're like high, and the ones that are sitting on the front are like high tempo. So it's not like they're just soft pedaling and people are yeah, going to blow just fast them. enough to give the impression that they're still racing. Yep. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah. So, and then um, if, if some people go and attack, they'll, they will cover depending on the person sure. is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they do it, they do it again and again and again. And it gets, it gets, uh, if there's a big gap, what will happen too is if you're chasing, they'll get behind you and you'll flip your elbow and mm -hmm. they'll come and do tempo again, which is totally mm -hmm. legal and totally a good tactic. <laughs> yeah. It's up to everyone else to kind of get through there and try to, um, like they're not block the roads, you know, yeah. 15 riders wide. Right. Um, so they're not really stopping you from doing anything, mm -hmm. yeah. um, but and, it just messes it up. When other teams do it, that tactic is tricky because other teams are going to move to the front. They're just going to pick the pace up higher. Mm -hmm. But when you have no teams doing anything to counter that, then it's kind of like, well, yep. this is tough. Or you get one person to do it. This happened in our road race too, that I would pull and then I flip my elbow and I look back and there's three Mike's bikes guys lined up behind me <laughs> yeah. and no one else wants to go. Yeah. yeah. And at that point you can't be angry at them. Yeah. No, no, and, you, and even if someone else does want to go, they have to come around three riders. So just slotting <laughs> exactly. into a paceline like that is so disruptive and so discouraging. Well, this right. also makes it so when their riders attack, if you line up all of you in the front and the front guy attacks, then if someone wants to cover that, they have to go by three yeah. riders. Yeah, exactly. And so they don't have to snap as much, or if they do have a little bit of snap, it becomes a, a five or six bike link snap it's, really fast. It's an awesome strategy. It's, yeah. it's unusual to see that level of team organization in a cat three race. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So how would you counter it, Chad? I, I, I wouldn't let them get in front. Anytime I saw a Mike's bike rider slide, sliding through, <clears throat> and I would hope that I had other teammates to rely upon because obviously one person can't mm -hmm. do all that work. So it's going to take team organization from other riders. One person... 
I mean, it depends, I guess, on how much clout you have, how much influence you have. You might be able to encourage other writers to, mm-hmm. you know, assist you in your efforts, but you have to have some level of organization mm-hmm. outside of their team. Another yeah. thing I think in this race is a good strategy is if you, you have one team that's kind of dominant doing that, mm-hmm. that you need to get in the breakaway with a team, a writer from that team, mm-hmm. because then they'll do the same tactics and you will benefit from those tactics. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You see, I mean, depending on your, your level of fitness, you see an early break from a team like Mike Spikes go up the road. It's in your best interest to, to give it a shot. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. the early break doesn't always work, but in a case with a team the size of Mike's bikes, it, it can. It for sure can, especially considering they can counter anything that, that uh, tries to get across to it. Sometimes yeah. I feel like they are half of every field out there. <laughs> There's a lot of them. Yeah, that's what yeah, I really, And they race well, and they're fast. Yeah, they did a great job, so yeah. kudos to you guys. I don't even know if they won the race, but just the way they controlled it like that, it was mm-hmm. just a great strategy. Like 10 riders? What, what? No, no. They, they did this with like three people. Oh, like okay, uh, nice. maybe three or four. Sure. Uh, yeah, one guy wasn't wearing a Mike Spikes jersey, but it was on Mike Spikes team. Yeah, that got a little confusing. To <laughs> yeah. someone told me because they did the same strategy and he was a different jersey and he went off the front. Sneaky. And I was like, uh, uh, sneaky, sneaky. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm far away, you can't tell, right? You're just like, oh, it's a red one and they're blue. Right. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Anyways, that's another good tip is you got to know because this happens all the time where, uh, like, uh, you could be on different teams, but you say, hey, let's ride together today. Yeah. Right. I'm going to help you out. Yeah. And if, Friends, no friends, and alliances start, and they're doing that thing at the front. They get an extra 10 seconds. Yeah. Uh, you got to gotta respond. And toward the end of this podcast, we're actually going to address how you would race if you don't have a team and, or if you don't know the field at all. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that. That'll be interesting stuff. Uh, some takeaways that I have from uh, – so uh, Keegan Swenson, Sophia Gomez, Vijay thank you so much. You're very kind to host me during the Soho Bike Fest, which was a four-day mountain bike stage race in Midway, Utah. Uh, so that's at about 5,700 feet. And I think they'll have a world cup, UCI world cup within the next few years. Like the venue, it's like something you've, you would think that you've seen this on TV, which you have, mm. if you watch the 2002 Olympics for Nordic skiing, cause that's where they happened. But you'd think that you'd seen this on TV for UCI mountain bike world cup, like a thousand times over when you get there, it just looks exactly like what you would think it would. It's incredible. Like the venue was amazing. The trails were great. You can basically see the entire course from anywhere. Um, it's really, really cool spot. So, uh, the first day was a TT and that TT was not like a flat long effort. It was like a 10 minute climb, a super fast descent, technical traverse, and then some more climbing and then a descent to the finish. And it was like 20 minutes long. So you had to be an all around mountain biker. You couldn't just have power, then a short track race, then a cross country Olympic, which is usually around 90 minutes. And then a cross country marathon, which was just under 40 miles. And I think 7,000 feet of climbing, a lot of climbing (laughs) in that, in that space. So. Uh, so that's, that was the, the stage race and in living with them and then also spending time at the other pro XCTs this year, I've just come up with like a short list of things that I see them do that I think we should do. In other words, the pros, Good. a few things. So first of all, if you don't have a mechanic, so in the stance pivot team's case, they have a mechanic, his name's Jerome. He gets their bikes as soon as they are done basically. And then he just goes over them instantly. He actually like puts his phone away. He asks that nobody bothers him. He's just in the zone and he just Mm. focuses and gets everything done. Something else is pretty cool. They have a whiteboard and they have like all their settings written down and it's up to everybody to write their settings down or communicate them to the mechanic. And he just works off of that. Right. So like super clean. That's luxury. Oh yeah. It's awesome. I mean, when you're a pro team, you gotta do it. Right. But if you don't have a mechanic, when you get done with these in these stage races, when you get done with the stage, first thing you should be doing is thinking, I need to get home, recover and wash my bike. And it's hard because washing your bike isn't recovering. 
but you should go over that bike in detail every single time because mm. things happen. You might notice that a leak developed in a brake line before or a crack. You're, before you're relaxing. That's exactly the key. right. Yeah. Before mm. you relax, just get it done. So get it clean and get it everything ready for tomorrow so that you don't have to touch a single thing on your bike. You just race the next day. And it's tempting to just recover and relax, but then you're going to have this anxiety and this thing sitting over your head. That's a good point. Because you'll be like, I need to get up eventually and work yeah. on this bike. You can't truly relax until you've done these things. Exactly right. That's a good pro tip for just about anything in life. Totally. Right? You <laughs> got to do your dishes, do the dirty dishes done. first yeah, yeah before you relax. And the other part of that too is if you find yourself like we were in Heber City or Midway, Utah, not a ton of bike shops up there, but I went to Slim and Nobby's. They were really nice. And I had to go there to go get parts one day because I crashed and broke a bunch of stuff on my bike. So if I had delayed it all, then I would have missed that time because they were races later in the evening. And then I would have been done for the next day. So it's an important thing. Uh, everything is prepped the night before too. So they have like their bottles, they have their kit, they have the numbers pinned, everything else. Everything is done the night before, sure. even though we are racing at 6 PM, right? It was just done. So then that way, once again, the work was done and then you could move forward. Uh, if you don't have a washing machine, which we did in this case, which was nice, but if you don't have a washing machine, then, uh, wash your kits in the sink, just get some detergent. And then a great way to, to dry them out is to wring out your kit as much as possible, but then lay out a towel and then put your kit on top of that and then roll it up extremely tight. Like you're rolling up a tent kind of, and when you roll it up in that towel, extremely tight, stand on it. Once you've rolled it all up and that kind of like sends a lot of the water out of the chamois into that towel, the towel absorbs it. And then your kit is basically at that point, the water's out of it and it's ready to air dry. It's a really good tip. I have problems doing that. In hotels. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's chamois take forever to dry. If you don't do something like that. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Way too long. So that's another pro tip that I saw. Um, and kudos to Chloe Woodruff. I was seeing her doing that one at Sea Otter. Uh, the other side is front load all the shopping on the day. And we're good at this. Whenever we do like travel for trips, <laughs> we're too good at this. We're too Real good good at this. <laughs> yeah. We have famous gigantic whole foods bills or anything else. Whenever we go to places, but, uh, front load all the shopping the day before the race starts. So like we went to a grocery store and we went to a few of them and we basically had a list that we all built up between it was Evelyn Dong, Ryan Standish, Keegan, Sophia and I in a house. And we were all racing the same race. So we had a whole list built out. We communicated on that list, got it all done. So then we didn't have to go to the store. And then pros are so good at eating. Like I was trying to eat as much as I could. And I think I did, I did really well. I've never done this well, yeah. but after we ate dinner and I was like, my, like there was food basically up to my eyeballs, I would sit down and relax. And then they'd be pouring like a bowl of cereal with some yogurt and bananas. And they'd be <laughs> eating that before they went to bed. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's what does that sound like? it sounds like <laughs> Nate. Yeah. A bit, yeah. Yeah. He's so good at it. So anyways, it's really, but it does pay off. And then another thing that they do is something really cool. This is for mountain biking. You could do this for road riding too. If you have a feed zone and somebody's providing you bottles, what they do with their bottles is they have the bottle and then they have gels taped to the lid of the bottle. So they basically have the top of the gel where you would tear it off. It's pre-cut just slightly. So then it's really easy to be able to pull it off. And they tape that portion with electrical tape to the top around the, around the cap. And if you're if, if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, you can see this, but if you're listening on the podcast, try to visualize with me. So then that when they get their bottle, it has, let's say two or three gels taped to it and it's taped to it. So then when they grab that bottle and they put it in their bottle cage, they basically can just reach down, rip a gel off and take in that gel, put the wrapper in their pocket. It's also really annoying to ride with your gels flapping around like that mm. and to take a drink with gels flapping around. So it kind of forces you to take them down quicker as well. That's a good reminder. Because I don't know how many times I've done this a ton where I know I should be taking in a gel, but because it's in my back pocket, 
it's a little bit of a hassle to get it out, I don't end up taking it in. So this is a good way of making sure that you, or you take just him. forget about it maybe. Yeah. Or you forget about it. Yeah. So this is a good way to make sure that you don't forget about it and you just take in that nutrition. Mm. Um, and along those lines, I took in about 400 calories per hour on the bike. And this is the first time I've been able to do that. And my gut was fine. No issues, which, uh, for those that have listened to the podcast for a long time, know I've, I've had a fussy gut. So, uh, I took in 300 or the Martin 320 packets, and then I took in two of their gels per hour. Um, so one of the packets in a bottle, just a 500 milliliter bottle or 550, and then took in two gels. And uh, it was, I felt like I was eating a ton, but man, my energy felt great. Yeah. It was just awesome. That's surprising. That's way up there too. Yeah. Uh, we talk about that aim for 60 to 90 grams per hour, but some athletes can get into the 100 grams, 110 grams I've yeah. seen. Yeah. What, uh, what do they say? Uh, 10 kilograms or 10 grams per kilogram of body weight is what they should be taking in throughout the day, throughout the day yeah. when they <clears> eat. <throat> um, and when you ride on the bike, you should also, you shouldn't just, you know, leave that devoid. You should be taking in fuel when you do that too. Uh, the other thing, like you said, Chad, the pros are not afraid to make big moves and sac possibly sacrifice their race. Like we talked about last week. And they're really good examples of that. Uh, Keegan won the stage race and it was by throwing out huge hard, big gambles on the cross country Olympic and the cross country marathon stage. So good, good on you to him. Uh, the other thing, when it's a points race, remember that when you're in the middle of the race, that it's not a time race, it's a points race and every single position matters. Mm -hmm. If it's a time race and you all cross within, and there's not a bigger than a one second gap, you get the same time as the person that crosses at the front. And in something like a short track race, a lot of the time it ends up being pretty, uh, a pack like that. But in this case, since it was an omnium, you really had to sprint <coughs> for points. So that was another point. And then I crashed really hard because I wasn't focused on the cross country Olympic stage. I would throw out a hail Mary to try to like maybe beat some guys uh, that I was battling with for GC. And it was really hard and I didn't really recover from it for probably, I mean, even like two, three laps later, I still wasn't recovering. Uh, it was just tough. And mm -hmm. I was getting down on myself and thinking about the positions I was losing rather than thinking about moving forward in the race. And I came into a position where I came up too fast on a guy and I clipped his wheel and then I ended up crashing extremely hard. So stay focused, stay frosty. It really hurts if you don't. Uh, so, and then also the next day after I crashed, felt really bad, but got my bike fixed and figured, let's give it a crack. Let's try. And I actually had a much better power day the next day than I did the day before, even though my body felt like it was hit by a truck repeatedly. Sometimes your legs can improve yourself or can surprise you, you know? So uh, that was good stuff. And then finally, good descending does pay off even on small, short track stuff. Uh, you'll see in a video that we recorded with Keegan Swenson, where he actually critiqued my short track, which was humbling to have a pro, uh, telling you what you did, especially when you screwed up a lot. I can't wait to see this. Yeah, mm. It's going to be a good one. Fun. I screwed up a lot. So, uh, get ready for that one. But he, in that race, you'll see that even though that it isn't like complex descending or anything else, and isn't very long, I still was able to gain so much valuable time. In this case, it wasn't moving ahead on the pack. It was just reattaching to the pack cause they were dropping me off. But, uh, descending, like with mountain biking, it pays off so much. It really does help just a, a huge amount. So those are the takeaways that I have from the race. Hopefully some of those notes can help you guys in your race uh, moving forward. The next um, one. I got third in my Omnium, but I should have said nice that in third in a race, but nice job. And you didn't get overall points. I only got three points over the weekend of five races. So we're going to race mountain bikes this weekend, right? Maybe. Yeah, hopefully. Probably. Does. It'll be fun. Yeah. Local race. All right. Uh, we're going to jump into Mike's question. Sound good. Chad? Let's do it. He says, this one is probably a Chad question because it's regarding the intricacies of supplements and recovery. 
I'm looking for a good or in looking for a good four to one recovery drink available in Canada. And he says, we don't seem to have as many options as you down in the United States. I came across one company that was offering a ribose specifically D ribose endurance recovery tablet. There seems to be studies that it does indeed restore ATP levels quicker, but that this doesn't necessarily lead to improved performance in the study. Uh, he mentions that they did 10 second all out sprint repeats in that study. Is there any merit to supplementing with ribose? I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks for the excellent training tool and keep it up. Okay. Uh, not necessarily, not, not performance related anyway, is, is the gist of what I'm about to hmm. detail for you. Um, so when you talk ATP, which is the energy currency of, of our, of our cells, right? And we're most concerned with our muscle cells. Um, it's composed of basically three constituents. It's uh, an adenosine, which is the nitrogen base, nitrogen base, um, the ribose, which is uh, just a five-carbon sugar, and then some phosphate groups. And it's mm -hmm. those phosphate bonds that you know we break them and then rebuild them, break them and rebuild them. It's the energy release and then the energy and then the the, the re restoration of that energy. So basically, we just cycle ATP. Mm. And then uh, uh, the ribose or deribose specifically is just a component of ATP. So, so that's the gist of it. I mean, hmm. there, there are a million ways to restore ATP. Supplementing with ribose sounds good, probably looks good on a label. I'm not entirely sure it's all that that beneficial. And the studies that I found, in terms of performance, that is, the studies I found did say that there are some improved heart function in patients with low blood flow. Mm -hmm. So it's not without its merit um, outside of the performance realm. Purportedly improvement in fitness, but there are always low low fitness subjects and low VO two max subjects. It's very so different. They're they're you know they're low hanging fruit really. Yeah. Um, there's purportedly positive impact on certain diseases like fibromyalgia, um, chronic fatigue syndrome, but those studies in particular didn't use placebo groups, so it's kind of iffy whether mm -hmm. or not that's accurate. Um, might improve muscle function and ATP replenishment in a couple specific muscle disorders. I won't even bother you with what they are because they're I haven't even heard of them. Um, it's not to say that it's not useful in that context, though. And then uh, there, the the study that I think Mike's referring to is uh, they talked about improvement in mean and peak mean and peak power output. But again, this was in a low VO two max group. We're talking, I think, like forty five mils per kick per, per okay. minute. So, so yeah. you know, low fitness people. They did daily sprints, I think, for seven days, a couple times a day. Um, and then one group supplemented with the D-ribose supplementation. The other group did a placebo. And then at the end of it, they did another round of sprints. And uh, basically, the, the ribose supplemented group did restore ATP faster. So that part is accurate, but there was no change in performance. Both groups performed the same. Why would hmm. that be? That doesn't make sense. Just the... Just because the energy replenished faster doesn't mean there's there's necessarily more of it on board. There are a n number of ways to replenish it, and maybe there it wasn't the limiter. Yeah, it just wasn't wasn't mm -hmm. wasn't what was holding them back. They weren't depleting ATP or running it way down. So yeah, I'm going to say no, and I'm going to say it's just a marketing ploy. More research needed. Yeah, yeah, or, that's, that's, or if there's something the there, they yeah. need to research it in in a more effective manner. This kind of brings up like the. Because a lot of the time, and I don't think that in this case, they're like trying to like, you know, market a magic pill, so to speak or anything, but Not necessarily. it certainly happens in our space. Like, you know, no. for well, athletes. When there's yeah. a lot of the same product, if you can differentiate yourself in any way, even a oh, small yeah. way, even if it's just something that catches someone's eye on a label and they buy your product, mm -hmm. that's a win. Yeah. So like, I think, uh, I think that this is, I mean, clearly, you know, Chad's done some research on this sort of a thing, but it's nothing that we can't, that all of us can't do as well. If we find something and, and we have questions about it, oh, I feel yeah. like we this, should look this into this was things. just me and the Google. This, yeah. 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 So I feel like we should look into these sort of things instead of just like taking it on, you know, the marketer's word, so to speak, like we should mm -hmm. actually look and find the science behind it. 
it's a kind of a good rule of thumb, I reckon. Especially if you're a competitive athlete that's dealing with possible <clears throat> doping issues and all that, you really have to make sure you look at yeah, these yeah, things. Yeah, for sure. So next one's from Nico and another nutrition uh, question here. It says, thanks for the great podcast and product. You've been talking about beetroot as well as pomegranates in the past episodes, and you mentioned that the nitrate and nitrite in them is good for cycling or endurance sports. However, in Europe, there's a lot of discussion about trying to cut down nitrate intake from sausages, cold cut meats, etc. especially with smaller children due to the fact that it lowers the body's ability to carry oxygen. Nitrite. He's Nitrites. Yeah. <clears throat> Do that. It's tough. Mm-hmm. This sounds bad for cyclists as well. Certainly does. More oxygen to muscles should be the desired goal. Also, the cancer risk of nitrate has been on the table, meaning it's been in consideration is what he's saying there. So what is your stand on this? How do nitrates and nitrites differ? And do the pros outweigh of the pros of nitrates outweigh the cons? So I guess, uh, Chad, how do you want to start off with this one? Yeah, so let's just discuss the pretty simple difference between nitrate, nitri- nitrate, nitrites, yeah. nitric oxide, and nitrosamines. Sounds good. That's, that's what it really comes down to. So um, nitrites occur naturally, um, and they're also used as preservatives. So they're in our bodies, and they're added to foods we eat. Mm. <clears throat> nitrate is, nitric, is, is, is a nitrogen plus three oxygens. Take away okay. one of those oxygens, you get a nitrite. Take away another one, you get nitric oxide. And that's, that's what circulates in our blood. Get to that in a, in a minute. It's like chemistry um, class. So, and, and, <laughs> and it's not hard to, to separate that, that additional oxygen in the nitrate. Mouth bacteria, bodily enzymes, reduce a nitrate to a nitrite. Got it. Is that reduction oxygen? Yeah. Um, and then nitrites, you take away, like I said, take away another and you get nitric oxide or nitrosamines and nitrosamines are the, are the real killer or the, the thing we should be concerned with. We'll get to that in a second too. Okay. Um, the nitrites are used to keep cured meat pink. So without it, you'd be buying brown packaged meat. So the nitrites, nitrites, sorry, I'm already blown it. Okay. Nitrites, <laughs> nitrites. Um, and, and they're just a preservative. They pre- prevent the growth of bacteria. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That makes so sense. Just keep the meat fresh. So that's the stuff they're talking about with sausage. Yeah. Meats, so processed sort of meats mm-hmm. high in nitrites are to be avoided, mm-hmm. but it turns out that over the last several decades, they've seen about an 80% reduction, at least in the American market in the amount of nitrites that are allowed that the manufacturers allowed to put in processed meats. Got yeah. That's a big thing uh, about bacon and all that kind of stuff. It's a big push right now. And sometimes too, you can, um, if like for bacon, it will say, you say like all natural nitrate or something free. nitrite free. Well, no, sometimes it will just say all natural and there'll still be nitrites yeah, because yeah, yes. because Chad said they they can occur naturally. Uh-huh, so you think yeah. you're not getting processed, but Got then it. you actually are getting nitrites, which you want to avoid. Yeah. So food industry, food industry is really tricky about the way they'll label things. Yeah. I mean, don't, don't even get me started. It's like free range cattle and free range or open. What is it? Free range chickens. Well, that's, <laughs> that's some nonsense right there, but <laughs> we can talk about that sometime. <laughs> Um, okay, so vegetables turns out are very high in nitrates. Hmm. Nitrites. nitrites, nitrites, <laughs> very high in nitrites. They're our biggest dietary source of nitrites. Huh. So, so what you eat, get in vegetables is going to be far higher than what you get in processed meats preserved with nitrites. Um, the body also produces them via the enterosalivary circulation, which is what I just described. So from the gut to the blood, to the saliva, back to the gut, this whole circular system, hmm. there's some nitrite production taking place there. Hmm. Because of the antimicrobial function and the killing of pathogens, salmonella, for instance, nitrites can actually um, aid us in our efforts to thwart salmonella. Thanks, nitrites. Yeah. <laughs> and then also nitric oxide conversion is, is possible. And that's, that's when we get down to the muscular level, that's what we're talking about with adding uh, why we drink beetroot juice and pomegranate juice and you know, supplement. I'm, I'm going to tee you up. 
So why then, if they're in vegetables, <laughs> but should I, wh- why can't I eat them in vegetables, but then avoid them in processed meats? Like um, honestly, I, I, I don't know. I mean, what we're trying to avoid. So the, the, the true danger is nitrosamines. Actually, I do know. I do yeah, know. I, you, right there. You, you, you pushed me one ahead. I have one oh, more point. Um, so the nitric oxide, actually, I guess I did cover that. Why we... Yeah. yeah. So what I didn't get to was the fact that we supplement with things that produce nitric oxide because it increases our mitochondrial efficiency and basically mm-hmm. reduces the oxygen cost of energy. That's, sure. that's the benefit. So clearly there's an endurance benefit there and we've got plenty of science to back that up. So that's, it's pretty legit. I feel pretty good about that. Um, the danger is in nitrosamines. Okay. So nitric nitrates in high heat plus amino acids can produce nitrosamines and nitrosamines are carcinogenic. So that's really the combination. So you have the nitrates or the nitrites in the meat as a preservative, mm-hmm. and then you add high heat and it's meat. So obviously there are amino acids present. This is where the, the harm, the harmful nature of nitrites, uh, rears its head. So when you have nitrates and vegetables and they don't have the high heat, they don't have amino acids, that sort of a thing. Yes. Then that's why it's not well, as see, bad for us. It, it, there are a couple ways to avoid it. So, um, vitamin C inhibits nitrosamine function or okay. formation, sorry, formation, which is why meat manufacturers, not only do they have to limit the amount of nitro, uh, nitrites that are in, used in meat as a preservative, but they also have to add vitamin C. Mm-hmm. So they're already working I've toward that. Yeah. I've seen that before on packages where it says like contains vitamin and C and that's why, huh? That's, that makes sense. Um, and we covered the 80% reduction already. Yep. And then basically use lower heat. So you don't have to cook on such high heat. So that's, mm. that's one thing, if that's a concern, if that's an option. And as much as it pains me to put these words all in the same sentence, you can microwave your process. There's <laughs> 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 just so much wrong with that. But that is an option if you're really concerned with nitrosamines. Kill, kill them off. <laughs> and kill off everything else too, but kill exactly. them off. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So, okay, that makes sense now with nitrosamines and nitrites and the the big separation there between like the meat and the vegetables that makes sense with the amino acids that makes sense now mm-hmm. about so, why it's bad and why so it's really like, it's nitrosamines that we're concerned with yeah. yeah so i shouldn't be concerned if i'm doing beetroot juice because it doesn't beetroot juice have vitamin c I'm, i don't really know the ones that you are taking in do have vitamin c i yep. know that yeah. much i don't know if there's anything carcinogenic about anything yeah. that takes place in the process of converting beetroot juice down to nitric yeah. oxide no heat and then no really amino acids either yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so there's my limited understanding of the difference between nitrates, nitrites, yeah. nitric oxide, and nitrosamines. Don't 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 oh, bathe. I'm sweating. <laughs> don't bathe. Don't bathe <laughs> lunch meat in in beetroot juice that's heated up. That could be bad, right? That's, that's don't cook your beetroot juice. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's the takeaway. It sounds very disgusting. Uh, next question is from Yaz. I assume that's how you pronounce the name. I may have missed it. Uh, I apologize. So, I'm trying to increase my FTP time efficiently, and he says, "Who isn't right? Yes, we're all in that same boat." says, I've latched on to sweet spot base mid volume two, but I've decided to sprinkle in workouts that give me short sprints or VO two work at the end of most sweet spot workouts. I find that finishing such brief intervals after a normal workout are challenging, but surprisingly doable. So how does this benefit me or hurt me in reaching my goal of increasing my FTP time efficiently? Um, so I, I think that this one probably comes into talking about what the athlete's actual goals are. If it really is just increase your FTP or if it's an actual performance goal on race day, that's, yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of benefits to sprinting. So Mm -hmm. this one, I kind of had a heyday with, it was really hard for me to limit all the things I'd like to say on this matter. And I'm probably (laughs) going to go off topic a couple of times, but it'll still relate to sprinting at all times. Um, so obviously you can sprint to improve your sprint performance. You can sprint to improve aerobic efficiency, anaerobic power, your alactic power, which is your, you know, your quick five to second, five seconds to, you know, 12 second ish, 15 second ish power. So there's a lot of, 
a lot of benefits to doing mm-hmm. to doing sprint work. Um, tacking them onto the end of the workout changes those benefits a little bit, but still useful. So cool. really, <clears throat> I kind of look at this in terms of um, improving your sprint capacity and then improving your uh, sprint capabilities. And there's a fine distinction there that I'll try to explain. Cool. Uh, but first off, you. you which is start by mentioning how important it is to train specific to your goals. So if you're trying to train a particular type of sprint, if you know, um, I've got really good burst power, so I'm going to train that, you have to be specific about it because these are very different energy stores, all overlapping, of course. But in the case of like a really quick pop, 8 to 15 seconds, you deplete that really quickly, and then it takes a while to to replenish. Mm -hmm. That's three to five minutes, 35 minutes. Yeah. So it's three to five minutes to fully replenish that. And it takes pretty much full recovery too. So if you're doing any level of work, it's going to replenish at a much slower rate. Can I share an anecdote with this really quick? Uh, yesterday we did sprint practice Mm -hmm. and, uh, we'll have a good story to tack on at some point in this question. (laughs) Uh, but uh, I noticed that very thing because what we would do is we would sprint and then take like an easy lap, which would be roughly around two and a half to three minutes basically. Mm -hmm. And then we'd sprint again. But I was, I noticed that when we did that versus I was gapping them out by more than that easy lap, sure. I did start to see things decline yeah. more rapidly. If you want to restore your pop, you're going to have to take a good three, five, even 10 minutes to, to fully yep. get back, depending on the rate of, of effort you're putting out mm-hmm. or the amount of effort. Yep. Okay. That, so those are the short pop sprints. <clears throat> then if you grow your sprint slightly longer, the burden starts to shift more anaerobically. Makes sense. So obviously, I mean, that, that energy only lasts up to about 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. That's the high end of it. So then it starts to become anaerobic. You're still working, you know, not, not relying on oxygen too heavily. There is some in there, of course. It's all three are going at all at uh, all at once, all the time. And then any longer than that, once you uh, once you verge onto a little over a minute, so minute fifteen seems to be about where there's a pretty even contribution from aerobic resources and anaerobic resources. So you extend it out longer than that, and it's going to become increasingly aerobic and obviously lower in power. If you think about that, um, you know, one minute fifteen second sprint, basically a maximal effort. Yeah, you're starting to go pretty slow if you're like really doing a sprint right at that point, and it makes sense when Very you look probably. at the energy system uh, utilization here and how it trades off. Mm-hmm. So, and then, um, interestingly, it's worth bringing up that if you do intermittent sprints, it, they become increasingly aerobic too. So they yep. can be these short little fifteen second pops. But if you're only recovering for ten or fifteen seconds, or even thirty seconds in between them, the next one you hit, do is going to be more aerobic because the anaerobic resources are dwindling, 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 and not replenishing. Yes. So the yeah. intermittent training is 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 uh, its own animal. So this is why you see like uh, in mountain bike races or cross races or criteriums or mm-hmm. something that's like surgy, even a sprint triathlon, I guess, could be. Like like this, but, uh, in these short, hard effort races that have these short, hard efforts, Mm -hmm. if you don't have a whole lot of aerobic fitness that you've built up, you'll see your performance. Those spikes are going to get a lot lower, Yeah. but a person with higher aerobic fitness, so even a sprinter can carry, yeah, they need aerobic fitness. You'll see there's, you'll see their spikes. They have good aerobic fitness. You'll see their highs will maintain the high level the whole race through or toward the end of the race. Yeah. Good aerobic fitness will be able to hide really well. And even then you're going to have to have a certain level of anaerobic or aerobic fitness just, Absolutely to, just well. to hang in there. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of counterintuitive to a lot of people, I think, because they think, Oh, sprinting, it's anaerobic. It's yeah, very hard. And then the sprinting part of it largely is, but you got to get to the sprint. Yes. And if you're going to repeatedly sprint, you're going to have to have some aerobic backup. Yes, exactly. Right. Yep. You have to rely on the reserves. Were you going to ask a question? Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say the, listen, I will now. Uh, when it says <laughs> the longer of 75 seconds, half of that is aerobic. This is why at the beginning of your time trial, the first minute yeah. feels, feels amazing <laughs> because your, your aerobic system's not really even going all the way yet, right? It's, yeah. uh, it's still anaerobic. And this is what happens over and over to people 
that happened to you before your <laughs> totally. 400 watts feels pretty easy because <laughs> it's like 400 watts you feels do, great today maybe i can do that <laughs> you can <laughs> do about 30 seconds you can do 400 watts for 30 seconds no problem before it even starts to burn and yeah. you haven't really done anything yet so you're not even breathing hard you're like right. this is amazing yeah um but then at a minute, and then at two minutes, I think that's real kind of a two minutes is when you said, oh, oh this, is, this is I a bad a, choice. I made a terrible mistake. Yeah, yeah, that's where you back way off or you just gradually deteriorate over the entire <laughs> remainder of whatever it's event. It's so much easier to do the opposite. It really just is. To, to start out just a little bit low and then go up. Oh, it really it's so is. hard to do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly right. You almost have to tell yourself that first minute isn't going to hurt. Kind of no matter what. Yeah, it's like, not going to hurt. Like it's, it's not going to hurt. Amazing. You just have to be smart, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Okay, so this is where I kind of diverge from what, Jazz is asking, and, and mm -hmm. just we're just going to talk sprints for a few minutes. Cool. So just awesome. just how to improve your sprint, how to get good at your sprint in, on the conditioning side of things. Mm. So I see this in terms of um, the foundational work, or really the basic capabilities that you have to have in line, and then later the application, or you're putting it into practice. Mm -hmm. So in terms of foundation, it's really really comes down to force and form. You got to be able to generate a lot of force, and you got to be able to do it with some level of coordination. Mm -hmm. Got to make it pretty. Mm -hmm. um, so. The ability to, to recruit muscle fibers is is what's at play here, and that's tough to do if you're tired. So so tacking them onto the end of your workout in, in this case isn't isn't the best way to address simply improving your, your force application or, or basically your sprint power, your sprint strength. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Like if you're trying to really raise your limits or your ability to be able to sprint and mm -hmm. you know hit a peak power for one second, five seconds, ten seconds, Gotta that's what you're saying. Yeah, you really want to be fresh. Fresh muscles and a lack of central limitations, so you can't have your brain saying, "No, we've already done too much work. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna rein you in a bit." Yeah. On the other side, of course, then we'll get into this, but there's something to be said for sprinting fatigued. But yeah, we're yes, really focusing absolutely. in this case, you know, if you really want to raise your power and your ability to to sprint powerfully, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. you want to be fresh. Yep. So. Um, and then just there, there are a lot of ways to improve your strength and your sprint strength in particular. And it doesn't have to be done on the bike, but there are a lot of ways to do it on the bike too. So plyometric exercises are a great way. Heavy strength work is a great way. And then of course, sprint drills. I mean, you could do uphill sprints. You could do stomps where you put it in a huge gear and just wind it up from, you know, 50 RPM to 90 RPM and then call it good. Um, and you could do jumps, you know, at high at speed, which mm -hmm. uh, Nate has a re pointed out a really cool video on Slack yesterday that, that I've linked to here. So Ian oh, yeah. can include that in the show notes, which is Sweet. an awesome jump. I mean, the guy's yeah. already going very fast. His lead out's working at like 1500 Watts or something. And then yeah. this guy goes around him. Like he's standing still. It's amazing. It's pretty nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then of course there's a neural component to the, to the strength and you know, how, how well your brain communicates. It's just your nervous system. You know, mm -hmm. how much, how well you've, um, just basically your level of coordination or what's called your neural patterning. And this brings me to a point that I've made a few times where, you know, we talk about practice makes perfect. Practice does not make perfect. All it does is ingrains habits. Yeah. Perfect practice makes perfect. So again, another, another, uh, testament to how important it is to being fresh. If you want to practice sprinting, well, you want to practice sprinting dirty, you know, you can be as tired <laughs> as you want, but if you want to instill good habits such that when you need to rely on them in a fatigued state, do it fresh. Okay. So this leads me to what we did yesterday and Pete, it was awesome. He was coaching me one-on-one -on -one, going around this little, little loop great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and instructing me on each sprint. Mm -hmm. All y'all are jealous. That's, I know. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the drills to start, what we did is he put me in the, the little ring and kind of like middle of the cog in the back. Mm -hmm. And, uh, He'd, you know, get me in the, the proper form, my elbows out and my, my chin down and my back kind of locked out. And I would start um, like a three-second sprint. There wasn't much resistance on it, mm -hmm. but it was it was 
the lack of resistance made that I had to really pay attention to my form because you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like I really had to pay attention to it and yeah. um, it wasn't that feedback. I had to drill. control myself. When you have a lot of force or a lot of resistance to press against, it allows you or doesn't, it shouldn't allow you, but we always allow that to let us kind of be sloppy with our technique. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what this, this doesn't allow you to do that. It doesn't. And it's also the other end of, you know, what's necessary here. We need high force, but we also need high speed, yes. you know, a nice combination of the two. Mm-hmm. You don't have to get ridiculous with your RPMs, but you do need to be, you need to be able to wind up to, you know, I think optimally it falls right in the 120 to 130 RPM range. Yeah. So if you can't spin at 120 or 130 with high level of control for a good 15, 20, 30 seconds, then you need to address the speed side of this too. I can't do that. Yeah. And then the next drill was uh, the opposite of that is we'd get in a big gear, go like 50 RPM. Stomps. Yeah. And then try to, to, to ramp that up for about five, six seconds. So we could ramp up from 50 RPM to And that's that recruitment we're talking about. Yep. That's why that's the big force demand. You need mm-hmm. as much muscle mass as possible. And when you don't have enough, your body, you know, adapts to add more next time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. then we put it all together and did an all out sprint. And the first one of that, I got power PRs. Nice. Right. Way like, so it was, uh, it was, I, he said too, to get the pop, I should be doing that the low force one mm-hmm. where I just kind of snap right away yep. um, and do that more. And so I need to obviously one practice session won't make me poppy, but right. I get mm-hmm. or snappy. I need to do that more. Yeah, often. Cause you can generate a lot of power. You just don't have a good jump. Yep. We were yeah. doing it. Uh, when we were doing sprint practice, Jonathan and Pete at the very beginning, they get a bike length and a half on me and then we'd stay and I wasn't drafting them. I was on the side, but then we'd stay the same the rest of the time. It was just that initial snap that well, you guys then, are much better than me. At. I was talking to Pete about this and he mentioned if, if he could get you out there every Wednesday for 10 Wednesdays in a row, he's like, you would have a good sprint, yeah. which brings me to my final point, which is practice, 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 oh, yeah. sprinting like anything else, anything else technical is requires a lot of practice. And I, I liken it to Olympic lifts. Mm-hmm. So if you've ever done a clean and jerk or a snatch, there is so much technique to that stuff. I mean, you, you got guys who have just flawless technique, not a ton of body weight, and they can move some weight. And oh, you yeah. get big, strong guys who have no technique and they can't do a dang thing. Yep. Yeah. That's totally like springing on the bike. It is. Absolutely. So much technique. Yeah. A realization that More I had yesterday. More than people realize. Yeah. Uh, when we were sprinting and spr- I found myself, so I started off with the, and whenever I do a sprint workout like that, like I'm outside working on it, mm-hmm. I always start with the high cadence, low force Mm -hmm. ones. So I'm in that low gear, right? I always start off with those to try to get the technique into place before I I move into the heavy ones. And then like the same process, light, then heavy, then just a a proper sprint. And when I got into those proper sprints, because I haven't done sprint practice in a long time, I found myself doing something that I feel like a lot of people probably do. And maybe you're not thinking of it, or maybe you have thought of it, but it's a good thing to take note of when we sprint a lot of the time we get so caught up in the force creation that we forget about the speed yeah. and yes yeah, see that a lot and you don't even <laughs> you hear it yeah, too yeah. you just hear it coming up they roll by you yeah. about two miles an hour and then you're yeah. moving <laughs> <laughs> and there's two things that happen so uh you start in too heavy of a gear and then you feel that force so you just focus on the force and you kind of forget about the speed and what I see the danger thereafter is that you end up then getting them up to speed and you feel like, okay, well the force part's gone. I need to shift again to feel that force. Cause I feel like I'm pushing against something and making progress. That's but if I looked mistake, at yeah. yesterday's sprints, 
the ones where I had higher RPMs, relatively speaking, obviously the really fast just drills on themselves mm-hmm. uh, were, an, you know, they were an outlier. But the sprints where I had higher RPMs, I created the most power yesterday when I had more speed. Well, and that's yet another thing to practice is being able to shift in a sprint, shift under heavy load, yes. which you're not going to, it's rare that you're going to have one gear that's going to get you from the start of your sprint to the end of your sprint. Yeah, it'd have to be a really short, really short. sprint or something where like it's ramping up in gradient, yeah, something or, like that. Yeah, with a super good lead out where you do all your shifting just prior to your last last 10 second mm-hmm. jump in a single gear. And the, the interesting part about this is that I, I, I've, I started to get to the point where, and this is something I've reminded myself of in the past, but when I'm sprinting, it's, I'm thinking with my head and hopefully sending the right signals through the body to not just press hard, but turn those things over quickly. Mm-hmm. And even when you're in a lower gear, that helps me. I feel like I, I feel like I'm more productive at actually putting out power rather than just pressing down really hard. Yeah. Cause the goal isn't to press really hard. The goal is to go faster on your bike. I'm curious to see too. If you look at your race file or your ride files afterwards, see what your RPM falls at when you're generating your best numbers. It was, I, it was about 120 RPM. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not me. Yeah. You're both looking at me, but <laughs> I, I feel like I need to shift more, which is yeah. my question, mm-hmm. which I would agree looking at your sprints yesterday. I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. They're pretty stompy. Mm-hmm. How did you see mashing? Pete showed me one. Oh, there's a video. Yeah. Well, that was a, just a short one. That was the low power one. That was in this little ring. Yeah. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. From behind you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Pete okay. was, Pete was in the middle of the sprints on the other one. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. So, um, if you are sprinting, how do you get your, how do you guys put your wrists so you can shift. See, that's and that's, sprint without sprint shifters. That's why I'm kind of bummed with electronic shifting because <laughs> SRAM, old SRAM, red. Yeah, you could grab that little um, sprint shifter and hold it tight to the bar, and you yeah. basically just kick your wrist. It's the design is. Well, yeah. you can put a blip in genius now, on electronic, so you can put yeah. it anywhere you want. Yeah, yeah, I know there there are blips. I, I'm. I'm just not a big electronic guy. Yeah. So the, so You're I, so old. <laughs> <laughs> I have my hands in position so that they are ready to, I, all I have to do is just move that finger and hit. Yeah. So my hands are there when I sprint. So that's how I, I don't know yeah, if I mean, that you can, answers you can the question. Create but. all the, most of the grip you, you're going to need and still keep your index finger free to, yep. to shift. And I mean, with mountain biking, I'm never riding with my index finger on my grips. It's always on my levers. And with motocross, it's always been, so maybe it's Mm. just like a thing that I'm used to, but my index finger is not tucked in unless, you know, I'm not shifting at all. My hands go so low that I can't touch the, that's 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 another thing when your hand goes low like that you're probably not as arrow as you could be. And the thing is you should focus on proper form with the pedaling side of things and everything else before yeah. you worry about getting really low. We're just shining a brighter light on how much technicality there is yeah. to sprinting. Yeah. These are things you have to work out. Basically my hands are in position to be able to shift. And that's like the priority and not just putting my hands in a spot on the bars where I feel like I can create the most force, but they are in a spot where I can shift. And that's probably why my arms are ridiculously bruised and swollen from my, from specialized. You need to fix your bars. They have terrible ergos. Um, but, or you need broader shoulders <laughs> yeah, or, or put your elbows out more. Well, there's something to be said for not putting your elbows out more and just having a strong, you can still have that strong circle of power without putting your elbows out. You're just creating drag if that's the case. So, um, but when you're tucked in underneath to be able to shift, you know, and where you're at there, it's just not a, yeah, it's not a great spot, but, uh, for your wrists, I should say, but it, that's, I feel like you have to have your hands in that position where they can hit the shifters. If you're not, I would say your hands are in the wrong spot. This is why today I'm getting sprint shifters installed on my bike. They're in the office, so I don't have to worry about it then. Cool. And what those are is a little DI2 shifter so that I can use my thumbs to shift while I'm sprinting. Sprint. How yep. far down are you grabbing on your bars, though? It's not that far down. I'll show you afterwards. But it's, you should also be in a spot where you can reach the brakes very quickly. I can totally reach to. the brakes, for sure, 100%. And how can't you hit the shifter? I don't know. 
<laughs> I, I can't. All right, I feel like this is a discussion yeah, for another time. Very, I can show you later. Okay, so, let, so let's bring it um, back around to, to what Jazz is asking. And, and, and so we talk foundation, let's talk application now. So basically you're trying to confirm your sprint technique in a fatigue state. You, he wants to know, or that's not exactly what he's after, but you, by tacking sprints onto the end of a long workout, that is one benefit you get. You see, d- do I have enough uh, ingrained technique to actually be able to muster a good sprint even though I'm really tired? Yeah. So, um, and, and a lot of that is basically handled if all those foundational things that I just talked about are in place. I mean, you just drill it, drill it, drill it, get really good at it, and it becomes basically second nature, such that fatigued or not, you can still muster a reasonably good sprint, at least one with good technique. Maybe the power won't be there because yeah. you're fatigued, but the form will still be there. Just to that, if I'm doing sprint workouts after another workout, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be focused on hitting peak power. I'm just focused on form, in Unlikely. my opinion. No, no I, I mean, if, you, if you've already pre-fatigued the body, it's just, yeah, yeah, but you can still drill good form, Yes, which is why, you know... Mm-hmm. Being tired is, is never an excuse for bad form. I've said that a number of ways. And uh, it's, it peppers the workout text. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and then, so so really then it's just, it, it, not just, but then it comes down to a matter of preserving energy. So, you mm-hmm. know, whether you have a lead out um, just, or whether it's just maintaining position, finding a good wheel, and then a, a fair amount of patience. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, start your sprint too early. I mean, if you know how long you can go and, and, and you've, sussed out or recon the course such that, you know, you've signed a landmark and you know exactly when you're going to go depending on, you know, whatever, you know, it might actually play out. Mm-hmm. So that is a possibility. And then there is some benefit to the, the end of workout sprints in terms of cell signaling, because for instance, if you do a long fatiguing ride, you get one type of signaling that, that inspires mitochondrial biogenesis. So improvements in your aerobic capacity mm-hmm. and you do that through the calcium signaling uh, mechanism. If you do it by depleting energy really quickly, you do it through the AMPK method. So it's just another another avenue to, to um, foster the same signals that inspire that mitochondrial biogenesis. So so more mitochondria to do more aerobic work. Yeah. And, and that comes with rapid depletion, which is basically what sprints are. You're going really hard, depleting energy supplies really quickly, and that kicks off a whole different cascade of signaling. What if you've done like a long ride, I guess? That, you that. get the best of both worlds. So, yeah. you, so you get the, the calcium signaling over the course of the long ride, then you get the AMPK signaling over the course of the short sprints. Got it. Yeah. I guess in the end, you just really have to consider the impact too. So uh, getting back to the root of the question, if you are doing workouts and then mm-hmm. you're tacking on sprints, if it's not affecting future workouts, that's fine. Yeah. But I'd also argue that if the workouts are really demanding, the sprint workouts that you're doing, and it's not compromising f- uh, future workouts, you may find yourself in a position where you might need to reassess, or maybe it's too low of training volume, something like that too. Because mm-hmm. um, I know I I would not consider doing them regularly after rides. It would be something irregular, you know. Yeah. So I mean, any workout modifications that fly in the face of your goals are to be avoided. So if you can tack these on and they're not, you know. A, coming at the detriment of later rides, races, workouts, mm-hmm. then I, I think it's uh, a great idea for a number of reasons. Final two points I want to make on this one. The video that you were talking about was Justin Williams, a current national champion. Nice job, it's Justin. Ridiculous. Um, amazing power. Uh, he and his team, the Legion LA team, which is pretty cool. Uh, but then outside of this too, uh, yesterday when we were sprinting, Pete snapped his chain at like 1800 watts. Uh, as well, who said 1884. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take so, her chain, not the quick link either. The quick just link the middle of the chain. Just the middle of the chain. Which is <laughs> so irking. Yeah. Yeah. I so wanted like, to hear it was a reuse so, quick link. I know. So, like, so Pete, uh, as soon as that happens, you know, when your chain snaps like that, it basically blows you out of your pedals because it's such a rapid change in force. Right. <sighs> and, uh, so it, you, he blew out of the pedals. 
somehow stayed up. It was pretty terrifying. Feet dragging all over the pavement. It was right in front of me. Yeah. I didn't. I, I sat that one out because my bike wasn't shifting correctly, and it was between gears. Click, 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 click. And I didn't want to shift. Yeah. And I still was riding at like 600 watts, and then he blew out right in front of me. I, I almost died. <laughs> I was scared. He almost died. He surfed with one foot on the ground. It was amazing. Two feet. Yeah. Two feet. No, he said he ice skated. Yeah, two feet. was one foot. Really? One to the next to the next to the next. He yeah. was all over the place. It was Bambi I, on ice. So he, but uh, he ended up, yeah, so he, he, he snapped a chain. So that's the other thing I want to talk about with this is that, um, I mean, if you're like Pete and you're putting out 1,800 watts, that's one thing. Uh, that's a lot of force, but this is something that is like inherently dangerous. And, and by no means are we just like telling you all of you guys to go out and to sprint as hard as you possibly can. You have to keep that in mind. And this is a spot where if you have reused a quick link and you go out to do sprint practice, I know the manufacturers say, go ahead and use them, but I've had four of them break on me. So I don't ever want to do that again. So in this, like in this scenario, you'll need to make sure your bike is in working order. You need to make sure everything is okay. It's also on the, on the forum. If anyone knows, um, I don't know if there's a strongest chain, like I think it's more anecdotal, but if there's any science about what the strongest chain is, I hear a lot of people say, well, I do this chain and I've done this. And, um, a lot of people, others, I looked on the internet before this and people saying you would never need it. You know, whoever breaks chains. Hmm. Pete, this is the third chain Pete's broke broken. Yeah, yeah, it's terrifying. Um, and this was a three-week-old chain. It was an yeah. Altegra. Brand new. Yeah, <laughs> brand new. Like, good brand, right? Like, things yeah. I don't want to hear. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not doing 1,800 watts, Jen. You have nothing to worry about. I, I have. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Chad has. He has big watts. Okay. Well, I don't have to worry about it. But yeah. still, um, I think it would be an interesting conversation. So if anyone knows about a really strong mm. chain or studies Studies, not it. anecdotes. Studies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let us know. Because, yeah, for a person like, yeah, yeah, exactly right. I'm sure Pete feels pretty cool, too, to snap a chain, you know, with 1,800 watts and not have died, of course. Yeah. So uh, Ben's question says, following on from the previous week's discussion on sodium loading, uh, I'm an Ironman distance age grouper, and every time I go for a long swim, at some point I will need to stop to go for a pee. Apparently it has to do with blood moving in the chest which increases blood pressure, which sends a signal to the kidneys to produce more urine. That one's mm, questionable. No. It says, and it seems to be worse if I have Gatorade the day before. We can separate that one out too. Uh, things have been somewhat similar on race day. While not really an issue during the swim portion of the race, it does increase in discomfort and wasted time during the first part of the bike leg. So for triathletes, does sodium loading serve a purpose or is it all just going to waste since we have that swim to deal with and everything else? Uh, so he says, he also says not saying to start the race dehydrated, <laughs> but sure. thanks in advance from Ben. So this is a, a, a good one for sure. Yeah. It just, it sounds to me like he's either, uh, over hydrating. There's too much water in the system, plain water, or he's a, a bit hyponatremic. And when you hear hyponatremia, you jump to the stories of people dying, you know, lapsing into coma and dying. Hyponatremia has gradations. There's not, <laughs> it's not just the extreme end of things. You can yeah. be a little light on your blood sodium. Yep. And that's all, that's all it is. Got it. So if, but this is what's most important here is the blood, blood osmolarity. Um, and it's the body's super good at regulating the balance between, um, or basically just regulating sodium. Mm -hmm. So it does it through your thirst mechanism. And then of course, urination. So what's important here is that you have to maintain the blood's osmolarity. And, and when you just dump straight water in, and there's not enough sodium on board, that water's just going to wash straight through you. So my guess is there's not enough sodium in his system. The opposite of what he thinks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very, very probably. <laughs> and it happens a lot. I mean, athletes think I just need to pound the water, pound the water, pound the water. But if there isn't enough sodium on board, that water's not going to absorb. Mm -hmm. Hence, sodium loading. Put a little extra sodium in, we can get a extra, little extra water into the cells, into the intervascular or the intercellular fluid, mm -hmm. intercellular space, intervascular space. 
Um, so I don't think it has anything to do with a single Gatorade the day before. I mean, unless you're talking a gallon of Gatorade, um, <laughs> yeah. it's, that's probably not going to have any impact on it at all. Um, your physiological understanding of what's going on here, I, I don't think that's it either. I mean, there is something tied to pre-race jitters and like a sympathetic response where sure. your your bladder wants to, clear, to void itself, um, where your, you know, your digestive system may, may do the same. Mm -hmm. Under extreme circumstances, it may come up the other end. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what happens when something you know, very extreme happens and people vomit. It's a <laughs> sympathetic response that it basically is curbing resources. Mm -hmm. We want our body to focus on avoiding whatever the danger is. So yeah. uh, yeah. before every race, I have to pee. Do yeah. you get nervous Normal. for a race? And, and often enough, if you don't, it's, 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 it's a non-factor five minutes into the race. <laughs> I've noticed that too. It's kind of funny, right? Like once you get into the race, like before the race, it was like, it's I can like, oh, do nothing man, but run to the porta potty. But then once the race starts, there have been plenty of times where I haven't been able to do that. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm actually okay. The uh, Ironman race is before the swim, and you're all like standing in the water. Half those people are peeing, just <laughs> waiting know. there because they're like, uh, <laughs> everyone's scared. If you're not scared of an Ironman, well, that's like one thing, and you. they're probably coming into it with a ton of excess water in their system, not yeah. not excess plasma volume, excess water, just straight right. water. And I would argue too, uh, you're going to need to go to the bathroom, or I would advocate to go to the bathroom at least once over your 15 hour Ironman. Like you can <laughs> oh, think absolutely. of like during the day. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, unless, oh, I you just, unless you just nail your hydration, your sodium balance the entire time, which I don't know. I don't know. Is that even that's yeah. realistic? Yeah, I, I think I you'd know. still have to go. Yeah. You know pros I mean? do it on the bike. Uh, yeah. If you're sweating just, it out, I don't know that you would though. If you, if you get it just right. Yeah. Okay. Theoretically. Right. Yeah. yeah. That would. Okay. I, yeah. I think it's going to be hard. Yeah. If you're doing a 15 hour Ironman, just drink a little more and try to pee. Like, yeah. If you're going for a world championship or, you know, do it. load up on your sodium the day before. I mean, if you're going into something that's, that's long duration, like an Ironman, um, sodium loading absolutely makes sense. If you're oh, going yeah. into something that's going to be a really hot day, a combination of the two, sodium loading absolutely makes sense. And it's really, mm -hmm. it's really unlikely you're going to overload sodium. That's a pretty hard thing to do. I did read a story. It was, I think it was uh, Precision Hydration posted something about a guy who drank a gallon of soy sauce or something and, oh, and bad, bad stuff ensued. I mean, that was, that was, Don't do that. that's the extreme end of things. But in yeah. order for you to get that much sodium into your system that <laughs> quickly, you really have to go what after it. What are you it. doing? Yeah. Uh, we've said this Holy before, but cow. I think Ironman is like one of the best um, things to sodium load for because that first hour of the swim, yeah. you're not drinking anything mm. no. at all. Mm -hmm. And then you get on the bike, like you're already starting an hour of working pretty hard. Yeah. Um, and you think that yeah. you're not sweating. You're sweating when you're in the water. Oh, um, sure. You got yeah. that wetsuit on. Every, a lot of Ironmans are warm. Every extra little bit of blood plasma that you can force into that system, into your circulatory system, the better off you're going to be in a situation like that. Yeah, yeah. and just thinking of the run too. I mean, you slow down, you don't have that wind going over you possibly that you did on the bike. You know, you're really going to start sweating at that point. Mm -hmm. And it's just really, yeah, you really have to make and sure. And hopefully you've done some, you know, heat, heat acclimation or acclimatization, even if you can get there early enough. Yeah. Such that, you know, one of the responses to that, to that process is that you shed less electrolytes through your sweat. Right. So in that case, you know, sodium loading is still a factor, but maybe not as much of a factor. Yeah. So this is weird for me to say, but Ben, you might be overthinking it. Um, <laughs> you're, you're, you're peeing at the beginning of a race. This is weird for me to say. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. you, you pee at the beginning of a race. Yeah. Yeah. We all do. Yeah. Um, you're like into right. it. Uh, I wouldn't worry about anything else. Yeah. And if anything, probably the, the recommendation is more sodium. Yeah. For there is, man. there is a balance to be struck there. I've done some long events where I haven't, haven't peed at all, but I've also done some long events where I was crippled with cramps. So, yeah. so I'm not the best example of this. <laughs> it's so much easier. It's like, it's like insurance, right? Oh, yeah. You pay for 30 second stop. 
that's it, yeah. right? To, to, oh, yeah. to have a better race. Yeah, yeah. And, and then when it comes to sodium loading, that's an easy get too. I mean, why oh, not? Yeah. Sodium load the day prior, sodium load the morning of, and then stay on top of your sodium intake over the course. And then of course, post is an issue as well. Yeah. yeah. Daniel says, I've set out my winter in Australia, he says, winter training plan using your calendar. I want to double down this year and increase my load from mid-volume, which I've trained with for a few years and have managed recovery okay, but I know high volume might be too much for me. I've ended up, which actually this is really common. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of people thinking yeah. that they're in between volumes, right? <clears throat> I've, I've ended up modifying the high volume plan by removing the Friday low interval, in low intensity session, forgive me. I've noticed that the six week TSS average at the end of build and specialty are lower than at the end of both base blocks. I had always thought TSS should be higher coming into race form. So in his mind, TSS just, you know, he thought that it should be ramping up all the way until your race mm -hmm. says, is it a case of not all TSS being created equal and something to do with more higher intensity intervals as you get closer to that race? Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, TSS could ramp all the way to your event if you were just doing the same thing. If you're just doing endurance riding, if you're just doing sweet spot work, then you could probably figure out a ramp rate that would take you right up to your event, taper a week prior, and then call it good. Mm -hmm. But just about all of our training plans, except for maybe traditional base, are varied. They're highly varied. Mm -hmm. So this is when we have to start looking at TSS as a measure of fitness because that's not what it is. TSS is a measure <laughs> of training stress. How yes. you respond to that training stress, that dictates your fitness. Yeah. So, I mean, the man himself, the guy who created TSS, yeah. um, has, says, has said you know, very specifically that TSS, CTL, whatever, is not fitness. Yeah. It's just a measure of a training load, and it's very useful in that context. But people try to misuse it, and that's where the confusion enters into the picture. Yes. So, and, and you look at, it's, it's easy, easy to look at TSS and think that that tells you everything you need to know about a ride, but it really doesn't. Um, we've talked a number of times about how uh, all TSS is not created equal. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of ways that that statement makes sense. Mm -hmm. And one of them, it just, just a couple examples. If you consider a five-hour ride and you stay at 60% of TSS all five hours, FTP. I mean, you just nail yeah. it. 60% uh, FTP. Mm -hmm. We're talking 36 TSS an hour, okay? Mm -hmm. you're, you're just steadily right there. Mm -hmm. That first hour is not the same as that fifth hour. So this is, this is an opportunity for people to start differentiating between stress and strain. So training stress is one thing. That's what you inflict on your body. Strain is how your body's absorbing that stress, mm -hmm. how it's reacting to it, or not absorbing in the case of overdoing it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, hours one and two are different. Hours three and one are different. Five, by the time you get to five, the amount of strain your body's under is very different from that first fresh hour. Mm-hmm. So same TSS, but very different strain, same stress, I could say, mm -hmm. very different strain. And then you can do like another example would be doing the same workout every day. So say something like Spanish needle, which is a really extreme workout. Yeah. It'd be a demanding workout. Yeah. Is what we're talking and it's about. really mm -hmm. hard, but on Monday, when you're fresh off of a weekend's recovery, say no problem, you get through it. The next mm -hmm. day gets a little tougher. The next day gets a little tougher. Do it that fifth day. If you can make it through it on that fourth and fifth day. Still the same stress, still the same training loads, still, mm -hmm. still the same TSS, but very different strain on your body. Right. So you can't simply look at um, TSS as the be-all, end-all, and, and, and escalating TSS is the only way to get fitter. Yeah, it's a, it's a great indication for what it is, right? The amount of training stress that you're dosing your body with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But even but then, you have to look at the composition Exactly of it. right. So, I mean, if, you, if, if this type of training you're doing is the same every day, mm -hmm. then you can simply, you can really rely heavily on TSS. Mm -hmm. But if you're mixing the composition of that training at all, Which you can't common. just look at the TSS. You got to look at the intensity. You got to look at the train. You got the strain. You got to look at your response to it. You got to consider all the other things that are going on. Yep. Um, so... 
it, it is useful in that it allows us to track our training load. We get to see, you know, mm-hmm. I did 500 this week. I did 600 this week. I did 650 this week and I'm starting to break down. Then you have to start looking at the composition. You have to start looking at all those other factors I just named. Mm-hmm. So it's never just as simple as escalating TSS. Um, your, your comparisons are really useful too. You know, mm-hmm. last year I, I, when I was doing 600 TSS weeks during the base period, I was flying. I was, I was, everything was going well. So this year I'm going to try for 650. Mm-hmm. That assumes all other things are equal. You know, you didn't just have a child and you're sleeping three hours a night. Um, you're, you're not under a lot of stress at work. You're not, mm-hmm. you haven't added training, strength training to the mix, et cetera, all these things. Right. Um, and then of course you can't escalate TSS forever. So, Darn. so we can't just keep on piling on the stress and keep <laughs> right. expecting our body to respond again. It's mm-hmm. about how you respond to the training stress. Yeah. Yeah. That's not just more. how you measure it. So how about periodizing things like with the plans, I guess, looking at it from this perspective with TSS. Yeah. So the, the base period, I mean, all the, all the phases have different aims. Right. And, and the base period is, you know, establishing basic components of fitness and we, it's 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 the gentlest of the three phases right so that's the phase where we can really jack it's up gentle? the tss yeah. by comparison yeah, i mean yeah. this is relative yeah but uh, once you get into in the build phase we're starting to specialize a little bit more which means harder training challenges mm-hmm. which equates to higher strain workouts so we've we've lifted the strain so it has to there has to be a compensation somewhere so even though the training stress is falling the strain is on the rise we're trying to tailor your fitness to the more specific types of fitness you'll need for your events yeah. And then especially even more so, that's where your fitness is peaked. And we're really just trying to sharpen particular types of fitness that will make you the best type of, you know, racer or athlete in whatever discipline it is. And mm-hmm. these are the very high strain workouts. Mm-hmm. So again, training load may fall a bit, but the strain is still on the way up. Yeah. In other words, these plans are designed for performance goals, not just TSS. Exactly. So stop, stop focusing so much on TSS and as always look at your performance. Mm-hmm. How does your TSS relate to your performance? Is your performance doing what you want it to do, okay, then you can start looking at. You see this all the time. Is your goal to have the highest TSS yeah. or is it to be fast? Yeah. yeah right? if, and they're not yeah. always exactly the same. Mm-hmm. There's cor- there's a, what do they call it? Not a correlation between the two, right. but at a certain point, um, you gotta you gotta train what you're racing. See what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if, if my TSS is going down, but my performance is staying high, it's kind of cool. Yeah. So, <laughs> so again, shift right. your thinking exactly. from just TSS escalation to what's happening to my performance. Yep. And this is especially important when you're in the specialty phase, when you're in taper weeks, um, just you know, when you're peaking. Even yes. if that TSS is plummeting, but you're feeling better about it and your performances are improving, yep. well, you're, you're on track. Don't just focus on the TSS. Now, you may be listening to this and think like, well, shoot, I'm just not going to track TSS. Who cares about no, it? It's but still very useful. It's extremely important. And I feel like a big way, a big spot where it comes in, if you're following a structured plan, that's all planned out for you. So, you know, it, it's fine. But as soon as you start to inject outdoor rides, right? Yeah. And I go for a fun ride on a Saturday, and then I'm like, oh, geez, that was 280 yeah. TSS. Like that's a lot of stress. And then I think about the next week, how that's, it's really helpful to track it in that regard, to be able to see kind of the complete picture, Mm -hmm. because then you really understand if like, geez, that was a 900 TSS week. I've never done that before. Mm -hmm. I have two really hard weeks ahead. I might want to back off. And and to be clear, when we're talking about these TSS decrements from phase to phase to phase, they're not vast. They're subtle, you know, but but it isn't an increase. Yeah. So, excuse me, really. I would concern myself with falling TSS if my performance were declining. That's yeah. one thing I would absolutely look at. Maybe the training training load I'm under right now isn't enough to spur adaptation. So yeah. I'm not pushing hard enough. So again, it has its merit and it's absolutely useful in its proper context. Um, so Daniel saying that for he was going to do the high volume plan and then remove Fridays 
mm-hmm. uh, low intensity session, great way. Maybe. I mean that that um, it all depends on again how he responds to that stress. That Friday ride might be the one thing he could leave in, and he might need to trim down some of the other yeah. higher intensity workouts because again the strain in those workouts. I'm not sure what phase he's moving on to. Did you mention? He's, uh, just a mid volume. Yeah. Mid volume. Okay. So I think he's jumping in to, to build right now, perhaps, mm-hmm. but basically he's, uh, removing a 60 minute aerobic ride on Fridays. That's usually what you have on mm-hmm. high volume to be a full rest day. Sure. And, and that might be just what he needs. Yep. That could be just right. Uh, just pay attention to your body. And if you notice that you're really having trouble because it's more high intensity, that sort of stuff, and you can handle, can trim out there too. You just added a recovery ride, 45% that I've been doing. Yeah. And what is the name of that? Yeah. So lazy mountain is an hour, I think at 50%. And then there was a 45 minute version that's now been renamed lazy mountain minus two. So now lazy mountain minus one is the 45 minute or no, I'm sorry. It's still an hour. An hour. Is that right? At 45%. Yeah, it's still an hour, but it's uh, 45 or 40? Yep, 45%, 45%, I think. Yep. Okay. Yeah, uh, but it is a legit recovery ride. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean you have to last a whole hour, too. It's It's got the same text yep. of Lazy, or the same workout instructions that Lazy Mountain has, which basically encourages you to, if you start feeling really flat, this is no longer a recovery ride. Get off the bike. Yeah. yeah I, I bring this up because uh, replacing it with those aerobic rides. So if you mm-hmm. think aerobic rides too much for you, yeah, that's and kind it, of the, it very well can be. Yeah. It can be just enough to impede mm-hmm. the recovery process. So I, I fell well, into that trap a number of times. It's yeah, just a little too hard. With like something like Pettit, but then you can do Lazy Mountain minus two or one, whatever we just said, mm-hmm. um, minus one, the new minus one, one. Yeah. that one can sometimes make you feel better. Absolutely. Um, it depends. And sometimes yeah. though, I've been the same case from 20 minutes into that ride. And I'm like, Oh, well, yeah. um, Pete's yeah. a big fan of these. He actually likes doing these race morning. If you have, if you race in the evening, he likes doing this the I morning of a big race. Awesome like way to see spin. how your legs feel. First off, you get on, you spin easy. I mean, you could do these every day mm-hmm. and, and barely touch your, your training load, and, but get a good sense of how you're feeling that day. So, so maybe you get on the bike, do one of these very easy rides on a Wednesday morning. And you're like, man, I am flat that, that, that might influence your choice of workout that evening. Maybe you had something really tough on the docket and you decide, ah, I know I, I can't do that based on how poorly this re- simple recovery ride went. I'm going to postpone that till the next day and do something a little more moderate mm-hmm. today. And mm-hmm. it's great because on those rides, you can totally watch any TV. Oh yeah. It's like, cause sure. I don't have a lot of time to watch read. TV, but I, on the I bike prep again. for the podcast today during, during doing one. Yeah. You can yeah. carry on a conversation. Um, <laughs> and, uh, Brandon need, he actually adds volume this way by doing, he does dance, but pretty much the same thing, mm-hmm. 30 minutes in the morning. And then he does another ride in the evening. That's mm-hmm. one of my goals to raise volume. Great way to double up for Cape Epic, um, is to, uh, to try to do these in the morning before work. Hard to do. I'm laying that foundation yeah. right now. I'm trying to do one of these every morning because it doesn't matter what else is going on in the day. You can probably squeeze one of these in if you have a reasonably good level of fitness. So for Daniel, that could be another way to, if he's on mid-volume, to kind of raise some volume by doing some more of these kind in a of very low, low strain manner. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, mix it in to see how you feel and see how you respond. Mm-hmm. Yep. Jordan says, typically you can estimate calories burned from kilojoules burned. <sighs> And he said, <laughs> jumping into this, this one. This is the Chad, the Chad podcast. This is, is the Chad podcast. Yeah, no, there's quite a lot of prep on this one. Yep. Uh, thank you, Chad, for doing all that, yeah, by the way. Welcome. I appreciate that. He says, uh, since one kilojoule is about, and I'm going to throw in air quotes, I'm going to throw in whatever else you want to say, about four kilocalories. And the screen, he says, of pedaling is only about 20 to 25% different. Efficient. Uh, efficient, forgive me. Efficient. It's like 1.1 kilocalories per kilojoule. We have a blog post that actually goes into all this, and I don't care how many times I've read that post and how many times I've figured I've gotten this. That's exactly this. the comment I'm going to make when I kick this off. So just no. okay, <laughs> this makes me feel dumb every time because I always <laughs> screw it up whenever I say you know the the one to one ratio and four to one ratio and how it all works out. Yeah, and so. I'll explain it. And it's really quite 
simple, simple to understand, but I have to review it every time. For some reason, it just I doesn't stick. myself in knots. Doesn't I, stick. I can. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll I'll, I'll lean you, on you Nate. then. Fantastic. Wait, wait I, can, I can explain it so, if you guys are tongue-tied. He says, what I'm wondering is if that changes at altitude. So we're talking, and, and I should, let me take a step back really quick uh, to give people some context. What we're basically talking about is the efficiency that your body is, is, is operating at right here. When we're talking about caloric consumption, continuing to push metabolic you forward. Efficiency. Metabolic efficiency. Yeah. So he says, what I'm wondering is if metabolic efficiency changes at altitude. That is to say, we know we can't produce as much power in general when we're at higher elevation. So is our efficiency dropping? If you do the same kilojoules at 3000 meters versus doing it at sea level, do the calories burned change? Okay. So right out of the gates, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you, Jordan, I don't know, but I, <laughs> there, there are a lot of things I do know that, that I think will be of use. Um, so kilojoules are a very close estimate solid estimate of work done. Mm -hmm. we, we, we can all agree on this. Um, on a, joule, a road bike. We're talking about, you know, on a bicycle, mm -hmm. doing that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Power in the in, pedals. In general. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Power, Power in the pedals. Power based training. You got mm -hmm. it. Um, so a joule, joule is a measure of energy and it's, it is a one watt for one second or mm -hmm. a watt is one joule for one second. You yeah. can shape that equation any way you want to. Um, we create 4.186 kilojoules of energy per every dietary calorie. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that 4.186, let's just round it down to four, call it four KJs per dietary calorie. Mm -hmm. So big C calorie. Um, most of this is dissipated as heat. So it's heat waste. Most of it goes, it's, it's dedicated to thermal regulation. Small portion of it is actually converted to mechanical energy. That's what drives the pedals. Mm -hmm. And when I say a small portion, we're talking gross metabolic efficiency. So if you think of gross mechanical efficiency, you relate it to metabolic efficiency, you know, how well we convert our energy or our food to energy. Mm -hmm is along the lines of 19 to 27%. So we typically pin it at 25% or so for mm -hmm. easy math, even easier math, call it 23.9. And then that means <laughs> the creation of four KJs is exactly one cal. Mm -hmm. And that's actually pretty close to where most people fall in the low 20s. Mm -hmm. uh, across top performing athletes too. Mm -hmm. And we decided on this one because it's easy. I think Garmin does the same thing. Strava does the same mm -hmm. thing. Um, we don't know your exact efficiency. Mm -hmm. So like, and. Uh, so I don't want to have a market. field where you can type it into the software because you don't know either. <laughs> it's overly complex and, it can and two people understand it. Can it can change too. And, yeah. and while you're, uh, it's not, these are all just rough things that you could use in comparison to other workouts you've done because at John's point, he's going to say mountain biking, totally different oh, yeah. road mm -hmm. bike. I bet if you're in the drops, it's going to be different than you're on the top. Cyclocross. Yeah. You like, know, uh, you don't know your basic too, like yeah. your position on the bike. Oh yeah. Right. Everything. <laughs> just so <laughs> getting out of the saddle versus remaining seated. Yep. So basically it's a one-to-one. -one. <laughs> so, exactly. So yeah. that's what we do. Yeah. And it's nice and simple and it's easy. And you can always just look at your bike computer and look at kilojoules and be like, oh, that's And it's going to be close enough for everything we use kilojoules mm -hmm. and calories for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's fair to say for sure. Okay. So um, in terms of what happens at elevation though, that's what I really don't know. It's, mm -hmm. I don't imagine the efficiency changes. I mean, I know power output is absolutely limited because, you know, the air density is lower. So, you know, per volume of air, you're getting less oxygen in the system, which, you know, as you acclimatize that, that, that to, to the altitude that shifts and comes back in line with what you could do at lower, lower elevations. But, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if that affects metabolic efficiency. I don't, I don't, I don't know why it would. So this yeah. is beyond me. If anybody does know, feel free to chime in and, uh, we would love to learn from you, but I don't know. And if it does, I can't imagine it's, I mean, to, to change efficiency, is, I mean, can take years and years and years. And it's argued that right. it even happens then. Right. It doesn't change efficiency, but 
if I am doing an hour all out at sea level and an hour all out at 9,000 feet, mm -hmm. I'm going to burn less calories in that hour at 9,000 feet just because I have limited Your work by capacity oxygen. is limited. Yeah. Exactly. So yep. that's one thing to think about. Yeah. I feel like you could probably test this, but you need a whole lot going on. You need like oh, I a, did test it at Leadville. Like you can no, just see it going. No, no, not, <laughs> that, not that. I'm just saying like you could test if efficiency actually changes metabolic efficiency. You'd have to have like a room that's pressurized. You'd have to be able to measure the heat change. Yeah. So maybe it's be, been done. I couldn't find anything. I, be, I dug around for a while. It'd be a pretty Some involved test out there. for yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. What about elevation increases for resting but a metabolic Yeah, rate. so, and that, and that happens. I mean, the body's under a, a certain level of stress, so your basal rate mm -hmm. will hike up a bit. And mm -hmm. there is, you know, some some opportunity for, I suppose, weight loss in that case, but it's not it's not too substantial. Um, I don't even remember what the figures were, but they're not impressive. It's not like you can go to 9,000 feet and just do everything you normally do and just shed the, shed, yeah. the, shed the fat. Yeah. It's not how it goes. But you yeah. do burn a little more calories when you go up to elevation because yes. your body is prepping or is trying to repair it or it's it's responding, prep itself. Responding to, to a stressor. Yeah, yeah. to be in mm -hmm. elevation. Exactly right. Feels the stress and it's working over time to get ready for it. So yeah, I, I guess that the, the, the ratio stays the same, so to speak, or whatever your efficiency well, is. We think, we think, yeah, we think. Um, but what we do know is that you will work harder or you won't be as able to It'll perform quite as high, yeah. when you're at higher yeah. which is why high. athletes train high and live or uh, live high, train low. Yeah. So you want to train in the presence of a lot of oxygen so you can do a lot of work so you can spur that adaptation. Then you want to go reside at higher elevation so you get that bump in uh, EPO and red blood cells and all the things that come with altitude acclimatization. Exactly right. Ready to move on to the last question here? Deep. And then if you're joining us live, stay with us on Facebook and YouTube and we'll answer the questions you've, you've been submitting after this one. But this is from Preston. He says, hello, Trainer Road. Love your podcast so much. It keeps me entertained all the time whenever or wherever I am at. Also love the YouTube channel as well and keep up the good work. We have a lot of videos coming through soon, don't we, Nate? A lot. I think we're, uh, I, we're so behind. I think we're going to do the analysis of like uh, six of them today. Yeah. So Big two, and yeah. drop all at once. Um, no, we'll, we'll space them out. They'll be trickled. Yeah, they'll yeah. be trickled. Cool. Uh, so, and then I, I have two of them that we did this weekend too. And I have five. It's <laughs> a lot. <laughs> okay. So uh, he says, my questions are number one. And these are kind of some fun ones that we can drive on here. He says, what are some tricks and tips of racing out of state and how to be confident while racing out of a state or with a field that you are not used to? I personally think it's a big advantage when people don't know who you are. Well, yes. So I racing out of be. state is can a be. good thing. But flip the tables. When you don't know who anybody else is, that can be kind of complex. Yeah. Right? yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's like, uh, I, I had this experience just this weekend with what happens at nationals. Yeah. With national championships, mm -hmm. you have no clue. There's so many unknowns. Yep. Um, I had this experience this weekend. Uh, I didn't know hardly anybody that I was racing against, mm -hmm. uh, during the races. And it was tricky because I found myself and, and usually what I do is I try to test the waters and see if I can pull anybody out see if anybody wants to respond and try. And then I just really pay attention to everything from body English to where they place their power to everything else like mm -hmm. that. And you can do homework too. So in the case of nationals, um, you, you can see the, the signup sheet. I mean, you mm -hmm. can see these people's names and most of them have, or all of them have USAC records. So you can mm -hmm. go through their race, their Palmares, so to speak, and, and look at, you know, how well they've done, how mm -hmm. well they're doing this year, what their ranking is. You, I mean, you can vet most of these people pretty easily, yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah. Just or, don't put stock too much stock into the ranking. Look at their results instead, because if we just talked about last week, how to, the ranking is slightly. And flawed. even that don't be like, intimidated by flawed. it because, sure. um, someone might be racing in yes. a, uh, a, a caliber point. of areas is different mm -hmm. yeah. and uh i don't i'm just gonna say uh they might be racing in north dakota 
there might be not a lot of people there. I don't. Sorry, North Dakota races might be Maybe the best in the, Pretty much anywhere yeah. versus yeah. NorCal is <laughs> inferior. That's not a fair statement. But, gonna get some but I'm saying the NorCal circuit is pretty legit. In my yeah. Masters one two three race, there was a couple of national champs, some ex pros, and a world champ in it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. normal race. It's pretty good normal race, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, pretty pretty fast. So I think the one thing you could, like you can look ahead of time, do some homework. Uh, ask other people that you know if they know those people. That's part of the homework yeah. that you can do. Once you're, you could you could ask people right then and there. Show up at the race and ask somebody. Oh yeah, you know, have to trust this person's opinion, but say who are the hitters? Yeah. Who, who am I worried about today? I yeah. found that though, to, it's that's messed me up because yeah, I I feel like. I get too focused on someone. I don't Mm -hmm. respond to the race and I try to focus on somebody else. The biggest thing I think you can do is when that race starts happening, uh, you have to get outside of the race itself, so to speak in your head or your own individual race. And you have to think about what's going on in the race. And if you see somebody that, and every time somebody launches an attack, they just calmly cover and it's no issue. That person's probably pretty strong. Yeah, there's a lot of intel. Constantly be looking for that sort of a thing to be garnered over the course of the race. Yeah, if yeah. you notice that a rider every time you get to a descent, he's coasting way more than everybody else, but he's staying right there on a person's wheel. Mm-hmm. It's not difficult. If you notice he's pedaling through corners and looks effortless when he's doing that sort of a thing, mm-hmm. who knows? Just keep your eyes open. I mean, yes. this this happens even when you do know your competition. You don't know who's on good form, who's having a good day, oh, yeah. that sort of thing. You got to pick this stuff up on the fly. Yeah, um, and there are times when your information. Coming into the race, you may feel like you know everybody and have everything down, and that can betray you. Um, like a good example of this was Sea Otter, Brian Gordon, a friend of mine who's very, he's a very fast racer, but he's been out with like many broken bones in his arms and appendages for a very long time. And he showed up at Sea Otter, and I was kind of like, yeah, he's probably going to be just holding on to the very back of the pack. And he finished ahead of us. Hmm. So, like, there are times when you feel like you have intel, but if you're not paying attention to what's going on in the race, you could be missing valuable insights. So if you're, um, you're out of state, you don't know anyone and it's going to be different recommendation. I'm talking about road racing here mm-hmm. for different categories, at least in my experience with categories, if it's a, you know, a P one, two or one, two, three race where there are teams, what I think you need to do is just look at the jerseys that attack mm-hmm. and to make sure you're in a breakaway. If it's got a lot of the jerseys of the teams, yep. if you're not in that breakaway, it's, it's almost the race is you over. You need to get in that breakaway. Yeah, exactly right. Um, <laughs> it's really, really hard. And we say this because if you get in a breakaway and let's say four of the five teams or maybe all of the teams are represented, none of those teams are going to chase at the higher levels. Mm-hmm. The lower levels, who knows? <laughs> it's every man for himself. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's a crap <laughs> shoot. They, you never know. Yeah, it's different. But at the higher levels, they won't chase. So really now you've now made the race, instead of one against 50, it's one against six. Yeah. And the other part, this happened to me in the one, two, three race. Um, they didn't, the people in the break didn't know me or whatever, but I was just so dead. I wish I wasn't dead because they were told me afterwards looking to beat each other. So yeah. if a bunch of people have mm. been racing for a long time and they don't know who you are, but they know each other, mm-hmm. usually they're looking to, to, to beat each other. And if you can act a little tired in this race, I really was tired. I told them I couldn't pull through, but yeah. if you can act a little tired, I don't like personally, I don't like lying. I think that's, yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to say I'm not going to challenge and then challenge. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's unethical. That's yeah. under, underhanded. Shaking your head a little bit and, and breathing hard. That's perfectly yeah, you fine. Can ham it up a bit. Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just yeah. don't lie. I completely agree with yeah. that. Yeah. Don't lie. Don't be like, I'm not going to contest and then contest. I yeah. hate that. Um, cool. But that's another thing. It's like another advantage is uh, you can get the jump on them at the end, mm-hmm. right? If they're looking at each other because you're not, because they don't know who you are yeah. and they're concerned about the other people. Mm-hmm. On the opposite side, if you're showing that you're just this amazing racer, you start the break, you pull the break, they're all going to be like extra focused on you. Exactly. So you, 
um, I think the best tip is to kind of use the other teams to your advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. On the on the flip side of that, I guess, to, to be that guy, <coughs> to try to be the athlete that's not recognized, I recommend not being 6'6 and not having yeah. a podcast and wearing a trainer road kit. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you stand out, that's for sure. They, they talked about wearing a different kit so he could blend in. <laughs> yeah, we were like, that ain't going to work. I'm going to do that. You can wear go to whatever a, kit you want. I'm going to go to a different area, though. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. do it. <laughs> So, uh, next one, number two, how do you race the stage race? If you're the only guy on your team and he says he's in cat two, do you team up with another team or it, or everyone is an enemy, especially when you go in with a target such as GC or a specific Jersey That's probably my race. central criticism with cat two racing is that it's, there's so many, uh, free agents. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if they have teammates, they don't seem to race together. I think, yeah, I don't know. Cat, cat two racing is it's, is its own animal also. Yeah. It's kind of complex, right? So if you are solo and you have a bunch of teams, I think that the last thing you want to do is somehow form some sort of like a a commitment or allegiance with a certain team. You should be a true free agent and that should flow and ebb and flow. And if you look at the good, like, uh, for example, Matthew Vanderpool, he's insanely fast. I get it. Yeah. He's exceptional. But if you look at him in a race, he does not stick behind a specific team. Now, if you, you know, get re- he floats and moves around. Sagan's really good at doing this. Van Avermaet's really good at doing this. You'll see that sort of a thing. They're also very strong riders. So remove that example and think about a rider locally that doesn't have a team and you'll see him work off of other riders, move on to a few others. In other words, he isn't stuck. Cause I think that the worst thing you could do is show up to the race, talk to team X and beforehand and be like, yeah, I'm going to ride with you guys. I'm going to join with you guys. Yeah. Don't even worry about that. Once you start racing, you're going to work in and kind of fall in with. We've tried that a number best. of times. People say they're going to race, you know, I'm here solo. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to help you guys. And it, it never really pans out that oh, way. No. Either maybe they're not useful or they just have good fitness and they decide, oh, forget you guys. I'm actually having a good race. There's, All bets are off. There are cycling memes about this, about teammates and their commitment. There's so. a big, uh, <laughs> yeah, I made, they're actually on the same team. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, this last weekend, I made mistakes of having this exact conversation with people. And then you're like, the, yeah, we're going to work together. At the end of the race, <laughs> um, you know, we got to get in the second to last turn, corn first. And they're like, we'll do it doesn't happen. I follow their <laughs> wheel. It doesn't happen. And then I'm out of position and they're not my teammate. And I'm not used to it. You don't know them before. Um, you had to be committed to my doing own the fault. right thing instead of yeah. committed to the riders. Well, yeah, you, I'm just saying like, uh, you don't, you don't necessarily know what that person's really going to do or they have the fitness. Yeah. So like if I was with you, Jonathan, we would have been in there or you would have like pulled out early. Sure. I don't know. But, yeah. um, I did Jose actually gave me a lead out, but then we got confused about where the lead out was going to be and stuff because we, although he did everything like how I wanted him to, it was, we, we were confused, right? He wanted to go later and I wanted to go earlier and snap yeah. harder. Yeah. We hadn't ridden together. So when you do these things like on the road, it can be, you just, it's not like a real teammate. Yeah. It's, you, you don't know what they're going to do exactly. So that's, not what the experience. that's what I'm getting at with. You need to be committed to doing the right thing to win, not committed to sticking with a specific rider or team. Yes. That's yes. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yes. Like, like you just have to keep your focus on the win and that's what you're going for. Right. Yeah. So I wouldn't ever team up with anybody. It just never seems to pan out. It never works. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it, a bad team is worse than no team in many cases. Like yes. you need to have a team that's really well drilled and working together for it to actually work. Uh, effectively. Now, now there is the the small in the breakaway. 
hey, let's let's pull this guy yep. out. That, can, okay, yeah. that happens quickly, and then then it stops happening. But I feel like in Cat Three and even Cat Two racing, a lot of the time I see teams chasing down their riders and breakaways. Yeah, so the, those on the road alliances form out of necessity. I mean, they make sense in the moment. You don't yeah. pre-plan those. Yeah. No, not at all. And his last question, he says, when and he says in quotes, racing down, meaning at a lower elevation, what changes will happen, such as an ability to go harder for longer, or is that false? Uh, yeah, if you live at a higher elevation and you go down and you race uh, at, a, at a lower elevation, you will be able to have greater performance potential. Yeah, Nick can talk to that. I mean, you're doing it. You've done it. It's amazing. Yeah. You feel like Superman. several times this yeah. year already, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. All the PRs happen there. And, uh, you know, things that I can do up here for, I don't know, 10 minutes, I can do down there for 30 minutes, like pretty easily. I haven't it's done actual great. workouts down there, mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, it's a, think about it as a, from 4,200 feet to sea level about 5% increase. Yeah. So there's, it's, it's fun. And you can also, I think you recover faster between mm -hmm. hard, um, mm -hmm. anaerobic or sprint efforts. Mm -hmm. So you can go more often, which is yeah. kind of weird because you don't know. It's, it's hard to know your limits, right? Yeah. Right. Like you, you up here, you maybe you can go five times, but down at sea level, you can go eight times and you don't mm -hmm. know until you try. Yeah. But maybe you can only go five times too. Who knows? But you can assume, assume, uh, a, probably a higher level of performance. Yep. Yeah. For sure. hundred mm percent. -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Uh, we've talked in previous episodes about how much or where where you can expect that elevation difference to be, or I should say, the impact of elevation on your performance or on your FTP, your ability to you know perform whatever you may you know, say there. But uh, so we'll put that in forum.trainerroad.com. Uh, we'll link to that chart uh, so then yeah, you it's can see that. and Bassett. Yes, and uh, and it's a suggestion. Uh, we've all noticed that it varies slightly. Like for me, when I go down to sea level, it's actually closer to five six percent rather than four or five percent. You'll notice that it varies for you. Uh, so, okay. Uh, with that, let's get into some of the live stream questions. Nate, I see that you're already over on Facebook. Yep. Um, here's one from Brandon. All right, Nate, I'm having my tonsils out on the 20th. I know it will take a few weeks to get back to full training, but up until then, should I treat my remaining time as a training camp or is it too risky to come into the surgery full of physical stress? It's a good question for your doctor. Um, but <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> but, but stand aside. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's my experience. Brandon, okay, it was so painful, and it took me. I think I wasn't back to work for three weeks or maybe a month. It was rough. For you like I was at, I, I was that. in bed trying to work. It mm -hmm. was, it was rough. Like full training a couple of weeks. Oh no, this was a good. I would say it would take me two to three months to get back to where I was before. Pretty rough. Uh, so just know that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry, but it's awesome afterwards. You don't have tonsils. Dave says, uh, like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Watt KG going up there whole lot. He says, uh, can I modify the order that I do the workouts in, in a plan, uh, during a week? And he says on a week by week basis, based on my other commitments. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is especially prevalent in the tri plans. I mean, when you're trying to balance three different disciplines, figure out how to be fresh for the hardest days and just what your work schedule allow your family schedule, but absolutely flexible. I mean, you gotta be able to move stuff around. And of course you always want to pay attention to how well the workouts are going when you do move them around. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're stacking two hard days together, or if you're following a hard day with maybe too hard of a lighter workout, et cetera, there yes. are some things you'll have to figure out, but uh, you'll probably land on a, a particular pattern that works for you. Yep, absolutely. And that's entirely up to you. I mean, the plan, it, they're laid out in a particular way for four reasons, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean you can't derive plenty of training benefit when you move them around. Absolutely. 
Uh, and, and with that too, when you select a training plan on trainer road and you put it on your calendar, <clears throat> you can specify which days you can train and then you can move the workouts cause they typically follow an order and like a pattern, so to speak. Yeah. So you can move those harder days Weekly to pattern. certain points or the easier days to certain days. You can switch all that around and then it just automatically populates. And then if you need to change it on a given week, you just drag and drop it. So it's really easy to do. Okay. Uh, this one says for a race like Leadville, how do you identify what power targets for the Hills and flat sections is the duration of the climbs a consideration? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And says, how do you are, and how does coasting factor in? So the, the tough thing about using something like best bike split in this case is that you're dealing with mountain biking and you're also dealing with a 10, you know, possibly more than a 10 hour race. And we've talked to Ryan Cooper before and he's like, yeah, it really isn't designed to, mm. to work within those contexts. Uh, that said, what it can do is it can give you kind of like a, a, a proportional, I guess, example of how your power will fluctuate in different portions of the course. Hmm. It may not give you the exact power targets you need to do, but it can kind of give you an idea. So that's one thing you can do, but kind of keep the grain of salt handy. But the big thing is for something like Leadville, uh, Nate, do you remember what your power was at Leadville? To 120, 220 maybe. So as a percentage of FTP and Two. your, your FTP was what? Three 30, 30. <laughs> yeah. So that shows like, and, and granted you're at 10,000 feet too. So, uh, you know, your, your performance yeah, so your FTP potential at 10,000 feet wasn't three thirty. Yeah. Um, but 200, you know, you think when you hear that, you're like, oh, if he has a three thirty FTP, that sounds really low. Well, Leadville is that long. It's that hard and it's that high. So, uh, you have to go pretty darn low uh, in terms of coasting. And I mean, I honestly, with Leadville, probably the best way to do it is to keep power consistent and try to just not spike, I would say, right. That's a good um, thing for pacing. What I did is I, I did the tables, reduced my FTP based on whatever the worst case was for elevation. And then I did on the climbs, I'm going to do sweet spot. And then other than that, it was going to be like, it was something like 180 Watts or something yeah, everywhere else like territory. Yeah, yeah. Very, very easy. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's what about coasting? I mean, do there's you really no besides just standing, there's no coasting other yeah. than coming down Columbine and then in a couple spots on descent, yeah, so coast sugar loaf. And I mean, you're descending. Yeah. Yeah. You're not really ever coasting. Yeah. Uh, when you're and and coasting is good to be able to save up some energy for sure. But on this sort of course, like you also just, you know, want to keep the speed up, you know, um, I'll hopefully just don't do it at the cost of all the performance potential down the road though. Um, Okay. Um, this may be a question that we need to cover on a pre on a next set, a set on ne a next episode. Forgive me. He says any concern eating so close to bed in terms of how that affects HGH levels while sleeping, or are you less concerned with recovery and repair and more concerned with optimum fueling? So I guess he's talking about the trade-off between I need to fuel for the next day, mm -hmm. uh, because I have a big workout race, something like that. But does that adversely affect HGH levels? Yeah, I, th this would be a good topic to actually dig into. I do know that mm -hmm. you can uh, a lot of <clears throat> athletes, especially strength athletes, are big on supplementing protein just prior to bed, mm -hmm. um, carbohydrate, and then kicking off the whole digestive uh, string of activities is mm -hmm. probably not the best thing for a body that needs to or that is going to rest. So mm -hmm. it can it could postpone your you know. Um, can't think of the right term, but when you fall asleep, yeah. um, it can affect the quality of your sleep. Uh, maybe the quality of digestion for that matter. I don't know, but this is something worth cool. digging into a bit more. Cool. Yeah. We can dig into that. Um, somebody says the camera work is taking a step up. Thank you for that feedback. Uh, it takes People a like your beard. whole lot of work. Yeah. 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 The beard's a big hit right now. Um, somebody says I was breaking a lot of chains. My mechanic put me on campy chains. His research said the tandem riders were having good luck with them. Anecdotal, of course, but chain life and brakes got better in this case. 
So I guess tandems would put a lot of a lot of strain on the chain. That makes sense, yeah. The and long chain. Campy yeah. chains are interchangeable with Shimano ceram? I don't know. I guess I guess so. No, I don't, I don't think so. I don't I've know. Never used them. I don't, I don't know. know. Free hubs aren't, but that's a different story. I don't know I about the chain. Weren't. Yeah, um, you'd probably feel super fancy if you ran a campy chain. So there's that. <laughs> it's good, right? Nate, you got um, one. This is just a personal one. Simon says, listening from Portugal, I'm going there to Lisbon in like a month. So, oh sweet. Um, message me if you want to ride because I want to ride there <laughs> on the forum. Okay. Uh, Edwin says, I have three more days before I finish my specialty rolling road race plan. Uh, what can I do next after that? He says, I don't have races, but I would like to keep training. We've covered this one, uh, a, a number of times. Um, but at this point, if you don't have any races, Edwin, we usually, it depends. Like if you want your fitness to stay high, then I'd recommend going back to a build plan. Uh, and then going through that and then going into another specialty. Mm-hmm. And as far as which specialty you pick, you can have fun with that. You can pick whatever you want. Yeah. You can do an endurance block. If you feel a little overwrought, a little run down, mm-hmm. you can, if you're, he says he's not racing. Yeah. No races coming up. Yeah. If for yeah. whatever reason you want to maintain your peak fitness, you can just lapse into the, the peak trajectory where you repeat week seven and eight or use those two weeks. Yeah. At some point that'll have a point of diminishing returns. Yeah. You can't, At some point. can't sustain a peak for very long, forever. I mean, yeah. but, uh, yeah, yeah. You can color, color ass. Uh, I know you're able to upload rides to train road, but we'd be able to upload swims and runs in the future so that us triathletes uh, don't have to input workouts manually. Yes, uh, we're actually backfilling those right now, but there's no promise because you have to build the whole front end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to, because of API limits, it takes us a very, very long time to yes. backfill everyone's uh, runs and swims. Somebody says, what are your technology setups? I assume for all three of us, uh, for example, during an indoor ride, uh, do you have a power meter and an iPad and do you use something like, uh, and then which trainer do you have that sort of thing? And then outdoor as well. Um, I am on, so for outside riding, I'm on corks on all of my bikes right now. And, uh, I use my 400 935, my watch for recording everything beside when I ride my Venge. And when I ride my Venge, I have an edge 820, I think. Um, and that's what I use. And sometimes I use a heart rate strap because all of you on Strava yell at me because I don't. Even though I don't that's really good care about it. Yeah. I've got an Edge 1030, and then I've got an SRM on my mountain bike. On my cross bike, I've got four eyes. On my road bike, I'm just switching to specialized power meter because I'm going DI2 from SRAM Axis. So that's I think that's four eyes also. Yeah. And then um, you haven't had good luck with Axis, huh? It's been frustrating. I, it's in my brain. I don't know. I can't <laughs> yeah. say anything. Uh, yeah, I, it's not definitive, so yeah. I don't want to uh, say anything about that. But uh, And then I have an iPad, although right now I'm using the Mac every time because we have an updated desktop app coming out very, very soon. And if you want to have early access to that, go to forum.trainer.com. There's not a post about it yet, but there's just a few things we have to finish, and that'll be out soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I use a H2 hammer, or a H2 is the hammer, Cyclops yeah. trainer. Yep. Yeah. Indoors, I use an elite qu- or the elite quick motion rollers and just my power meter. There's no erg. Uh, I just shift and change cadence. And then I usually use my iPhone and I have a case that KOM cycling makes like a little Garmin mount that you stick on with adhesive onto the back of a phone case. And I use that and I just get a really cheap, like $5 phone case off of Amazon. And that's what I twist lock into my Garmin mount, um, mm-hmm. when I train inside. Uh, and I usually use the iPhone app unless we're doing testing. Yeah. Tons of overlap with these guys. Um, outside it's edge ten thirty, and then whatever power meters on whatever bike I'm riding, they all yeah. have something. Whether it's a cork, stages, rotor on the TT bike, whatever. Mm-hmm. There's something. Indoors, I'm either on a kicker or a hammer. 
and uh, I usually use my iPhone in just one of the cradles Jonathan just described, but since we are testing this Mac app or a Mac application on the mm-hmm. laptop or desktop or laptop, I'm using that right now. On the line of tech, can I talk about something tech really quick? Yes. Yeah. yeah, you have to ask me. No, it's, it's not Let's about the it. app. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Eagle Axis, I got that just before the race because there's no time like testing a brand new drivetrain like a, try, drivetrain like a race, right? <laughs> um, but uh, it works very well. Uh, I'd say it works better than uh, my experience with the road ETAP has been less than stellar. Even yesterday during our sprints, there were three sprints out of them where it just never shifted. I was hitting the buttons and I could hear it trying to shift, but just, you never know when it's actually going to grab that gear. And that's my big complaint with this it. This is why I don't like electronic. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, not, like DM2 is perfect. Like it seems like it just works every time, it's but this one, not so much. It's, it's fancy, so, but I, I like, yeah. Axis on the other hand feels instant. Like when you click that shifter, it happens. But mm. the two problems are, it's just the shifter that I have like, problems with the ergos are super weird. So whatever setup you have with mountain bike levers, a lot of the time it's dependent on the position of your brake lever. And they've got these weird little things that can relocate it to the left or to the right. And then the shifter has two positions. I could, I still can't get a good ergonomic position for my hand. So I'm going to have to go back and get a separate clamp for the shifter and mount it inside. And then hopefully that works out, but I still don't know if that's going to work. So they need to fix the ergos on the shifter. And the other thing they absolutely need to fix is that shifter has such a light throw. It's like a toggle switch. And I could say, I could say the same thing about the road shifters. Like DI two feels positive, like more of a click. This one feels like you just move your thumb up and it kind of clicks, but when you're descending into like a bumpy corner, Hmm you have no clue if you've shifted 12 times or once. And you'll hear in this video that you see uh, where Keegan analyzed a short track, I was coming out of a 180 turn where we bled a ton of speed and there was, and I was shifted down way too many times every time, but I had no clue if I was shifting or not, I couldn't tell. So then I'd go into that turn and I'd be spinning way too quick and I'd have to grab a bunch of gears and it would like four bike lengths would open up every time. So, uh, they, they need to fix the shifter, but everything else is incredible. It's the best shifting drivetrain I've had. And it's way less fussy than mechanical Eagle. Cause I felt like if that one went a single quarter turn on the barrel adjuster out, everything went crazy for hmm. me, um, on all three versions of Eagle mechanical I had. So it's kind of cool. Uh, okay. Any uh, others? Jeff? Yeah, I have a super short legs, 30 inch inseam, but I'm 511. Would it make sense to look into 165 millimeter cranks? Mm-hmm. This is kind of the thought of I'm shorter, so I should have shorter cranks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are you guys' thoughts on this? <clears throat> Alan Lim. No, not Alan Lim. Uh, Hunter name? Allen? No. Some Zin, guy? At, uh, Leonard Zinn. <laughs> Leonard Zinn. He makes probably the strongest argument for fitting your crank size to your body dimensions. Yeah. Um, so it, I used to think, doesn't matter, 172.5, 175, you're, you're good. But I've been reading some of his stuff recently, and it does sound like there might be something to it. So I think it's yeah. worth considering. I even, I mean, I know that this is an extreme example, but like with my toddler, he's riding a pedal bike now. And the crank arms are way too long. Like, I don't know what they were thinking, giving kids crank arms this long, uh, you know, for their height. But when you get into adults, I, I don't know. I'm honestly on a mountain bike. I'd go to 165s if I could. I would go short uh-huh. just because I don't want to have pedal strikes. And I figure my body's going to figure out how to pedal 165s just like it pedals 170. I might have a short adjustment period, but I think it'll work. Um, yeah, I don't know. Crank length is something we've talked about before on the podcast. There's no true conclusive like decision that like, this is the best crank length. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in many cases, what you see is that a person switches, they have this adjustment period where they either experience like a honeymoon phase or the opposite of that. And then everything normalizes again. 
So it's, it's kind of a debate, but I would say if you're uncomfortable at all, if you're short and you have like one seventy fives or something, mm -hmm. I could see that maybe being uncomfortable. It's one thing worth looking into for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Um, Yuri asked a question and I want to talk about Yuri first because he was at golden state uh -huh. and Yuri and his team, Velo, Penno Velo, I forgot. Oh, I forgot. Pen Sorry. Velo. Pen Velo. Yeah. Um, totally countered me in a way of, <laughs> so, um, it's good. And people should hear about yeah. this. And even though it's a way to beat me, it's okay. Um, <laughs> I don't have a much of a snap, but he probably knows that. And mm -hmm. he would follow my wheel so that when I would try to do the acceleration from the back, mm. he just gets brought Slashed with me the down. whole time with his guy. Okay. It happened like three times. I look back, <laughs> it's me and him or me and him and his teammate. And we have a gap. Um, we never got that organized into a break, but uh, very good strategy um, to do that. And people do that to Pete at the crits here too, mm -hmm. because they know he does the same thing. Mm. So he's marked always. Yeah. But, the way I started to do this in the last race and, and uh, he saw me do this is the mutual assured destruction. I just was like, well, I'm just going to drop back and I'm, I'm like, I'm going to do the next race too. So if I get dropped from this, yeah, it's so I, you know what I mean? Like you just keep floating back until they either lose the race with you or they have to then cover the move mm -hmm. to do that. So that's a good way you can do it against it. But what he asked is um, when racing two or more categories back to back, like Nate did at Golden State this weekend, how do you approach nutrition, mm -hmm. which is tough. Um, I made a huge mistake. I didn't think I was going to race back to back. I didn't bring bottle cages down. So <laughs> you didn't pack one either. Stay no way. I had, there's only so much room and I was like, yeah. I'm going to have hours between these races. So I, yeah. I can do a 40 minute race, have three hours and do another 40 yeah. minute race. Uh -huh. But then I did a 50 minute race then with a 60 minute race. Mm -hmm. And that's when my hands started to cramp up. Yeah. So to me, I would do a high calorie bottle. Yeah. Kind of like that Martan stuff. Yeah, yeah. Something um, that gives you a lot. Yep, beta then, fuel, something like that. Yep, and then do a gel between each one um, because you're during the ride, you're not going to be able to do gels. Um, or if you do, you're very – just don't do gels in a crit. Yeah, um, it's hard to do a gel in a crit. Yeah, and you got to like float it's off the back. It's hard to do anything in a crit. <laughs> it's hard to grab a drink in a crit. <laughs> it is. That's right. So you're going to have to force yourself to drink that high-calorie bottle. But I would totally do a mm -hmm. high-calorie bottle. Between the race, I tried to like just slam some water and uh, take a gel, but it wasn't enough. Hmm. Any uh, other tips? No, I, I no, I, I would just say that. I mean, the crits are a totally different beast. If you have something like a cross country Olympic race, or if you have mm -hmm. something else like that, then you can fuel in that, you know, but come into it topped off. That's for sure. Yeah. That if the crit does have like a descent in it, you might be able to choke down a gel on that, but even then it's just tough. No, there so, are opportunities to drink yeah. in crits. I mean, especially if you get in a break or something, mm -hmm. but some of them are just so technical and so fast and there's so much going on. You can't get your hands off your bars. Yeah. The, between the races, we had three hours and I like this setup as I had a little cooler and I had almond milk in there, which really doesn't go bad if it's warm and yeah. it was not opened yet. And then I had a uh, Bob's Red muesli and a bowl and a spoon. So I, I ate a thousand calories of muesli in between very high carb. There's some nuts in it, but I didn't have to go leave and go find, you know, whatever, sure. whatever was close by, um, yeah, really complex. reduced the stress and it was super easy to make and didn't make a mess. Cool. All right. With that, thanks for joining us, everybody. Uh, thanks for asking those questions. Oh, one last shout out too, uh, to the folks I was racing against in my race, they were trainer road users. So uh, Bruce Depp, nice job. And it was great to meet so many of you at that stage race. That was really cool. Uh, thanks for trusting us with your training. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more about what we do here at Trainer Road, head over to trainerroad.com. We have some exciting stuff coming out. Uh, stay tuned to our forum as well and join the conversation over there. And if you enjoy this episode, please share it with your friends. That's honestly the most helpful thing you can probably do for us. So we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.